Welcome back, everybody. It's CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. You can follow him on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. It's Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish T-R-I-C-H-E on the Twitter machine. And today on the show, we're going to be continuing our team preview series. We're going 70 through 61 here and we're gonna start hitting you know a little bit even we got some overs in here we got some unders in here so you know this is kind of the mid-tier so you're gonna get some of both but there's a little bit of news before we get to 70 to 61 uh we start out with nevada already depleted roster took another big hit this week as super seniors right tackle aaron frost and safety jawan claiborne suffered significant injuries that will most likely keep them sidelined for the entire season. Uh, Frost was a potential NFL draft pick and the only all mountain West conference preseason selection for the Wolfpack. It was also uh, the only returning starter on the old line and Claiborne was the team's leading returning tackler. So uh, they were thin and they just got a little bit thinner. UNLV linebacker, Brendan Scott suffered a season ending injury recently with a significant, which is a significant blow to the rebels. Scott recorded 10 tackles for loss in uh, four sacks as a redshirt freshman last year. Uh, the U Miami left tackle Zion Nelson may not be ready for week one. He had a minor knee surgery and will be limited in fall camp. John Campbell will uh, be the replacement for him for the Hurricanes while he is out. And he Zion Nelson is a guy that, uh, you know, if you've read any pro uh, NFL draftings, he is definitely high on boards for the NFL draft next year. So that's a potential big blow. For Miami, for Miami, uh, a quick update on a team we discussed earlier uh, last week: Utah State, uh, which brought in Anthony Switzer from Arkansas State to play the hybrid striker role for the defending Mountain West Conference champions. Uh, they will be without him. He suffered a knee injury during the spring game, which was later confirmed to be significant, and is expected to sideline him for a long time, if not the whole year. And right before we jumped on, Washington State offensive lineman uh, Mayake. Uh, Fafita uh, is has gone down with an injury, and we discussed last week that their O line was already a little bit light. So you know, I mean, the the news giveth, the news taketh away here, Nick. Uh, at this uh, you know early part of the preseason, and uh, just some brutal blows to some of these programs. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, you know the the negative to all these fall camps starting up, and I don't know about you guys or, or any of our listeners, but I've been spending a big portion of my uh, week just trying to find, you know, and read through as many uh, updates from practice number one as possible, the five biggest observations or, or whatever. Uh, so unfortunately, you know, a lot of that day one sort of roundup uh, is some confirmation in, in some cases that guys were injured before fall camp opened or, you know, players leaving the roster, things like that. But then of course, once uh, the teams start actually hitting the practice field uh, like Nevada to lose, you know, two of arguably their, you know, top three, four uh, most impactful players, most experienced players on a team that is uh, literally the least experienced at the FBS level this year. So um you know, unfortunately, once once practices start and, and guys start moving around and hitting and things like that, uh, it opens up the possibility that somebody will go down with an injury. So a team like Nevada that couldn't afford, you know, 
to, to lose anybody else. Uh, lost two of its most important players, one on each side of the ball. UNLV trying to make a, a you know step forward toward bowl eligibility uh, and to lose one of their most productive returning linebackers from last year is big. Uh, Miami, we've talked for years since the you know very early days of this podcast that uh, Miami has struggled on the offensive line to get going and to lose potentially. I mean, it sounds like he's uh, not going to be out far into the season if if in fact he does miss week one but without zion nelson potentially um their most talented uh offensive lineman that's you know potentially gonna put that unit in a little bit of a, a disadvantage early and and then a couple of the teams that we just got done talking about um some areas that similarly you know couldn't really afford uh, any major injuries and, and we haven't heard for sure yet as we record if fafita um, you know, it, it sounded like he was carted off. That's usually not, uh, a term that you want to hear. And there was actually another, uh, projected backup that apparently very shortly after, uh, Fafita went down was carted off as well. Um, that's not a term we like to see on Twitter. It's, yeah. you know, one that, that leads to a lot of speculation. Uh, hopefully he will be okay. Hopefully all these guys will heal up and get back, uh, quickly. And even some of the ones that, you know, looks like we might uh, not be able to see them on the field this year. You know, certainly wish them the best and a speedy recovery, and and maybe they will be able to get back uh, before all is said and done. But uh, this is unfortunately just sort of, uh, you know, one nature of the things of the that happens this time of year. Yeah, nature of the beast. It just it happens. Xavier, uh, you played college football. What was it like when you know a, a star player would go down? I'm sure the practice for the rest of the day was a little bit somber. How long does it take to get back into like a normal rhythm after something like this happens in the practice field? Yeah, I mean everybody knows on the team where you're good, where you're great with depth. Like, right. you know, if if a guy goes down and you realize that, hey, we've got a junior or a sophomore behind him who's you know can step right in and take his spot, cool. Uh, but when you're in a situation like Washington State is where they understand where we, we don't have much depth here at O-line and for another guy to go down at that position, it, it hurts. It, it, you can feel it. You can see it in the way that people practice. Um, you know, the, I've had some situations where an injury was bad enough where coach was like, all right, cool. It's going to end it for the day. Uh, you know, yeah. some coaches are very superstitious and they're like, hey, listen, one guy gets hurt, not risking anybody else because seemingly yeah. when it pours uh, like you like Nick was you know alluding to what which what happened with Washington State you know uh, we've seen it happen even at the pro level uh, it was like Tampa Bay had back-to-back guys get hurt in the same practice on the same day too so you know, like when it rains it pours sometimes so coaches you know and for players you kind of get you you remember that this game has its costs and it's it's, it's something that you know once after it after it happens especially with one of your own teammates it's really hard to kind of readjust to getting that physical again um, especially in these situations when it's early fall camp, uh, you're probably just putting the pads on um, again since spring and somebody gets hurt. It takes you, you know, it could take you a practice. Could, for some guys, it could take them two practices, depending on how close they are to the guy, um, to kind of <clears throat> get back in the headset and get back in the mindset of like ready to go, ready to be physical, ready to, you know, hit each other consistently again, especially if the injury happened due to something that was happening on the field, um, like a blindside hit or the guy, you know, just being a, a, just an extra, you know, energy too rough. If somebody's playing 100% and somebody was playing 95%, that can lead to an injury just like that. Um, and so it, you often see guys kind of throttle it down a little bit. 
Um, and just be like, all right, guys, like, you know, you, you'll fit up a little bit. Right, better. right. You focus a little bit more on your form when you're running around out there because you don't want to be the next guy to hurt a starter or the next guy to hurt somebody that was key for the depth uh, on your roster. So I, I feel bad for, for Zion Nelson in Miami and for all these guys who have gotten hurt in, in, in fall camp because the other part of it, too, is after that happens, you're kind of for the next, you know, it, it, what is it? it's Friday. So over the weekend, they're kind of in, you know, as a player, you're kind of just waiting to see what this is going to look like come next week. You know, who's going to be the number one guy on the depth chart, depending on what position this is. And that's going to change how that changes a lot of how you practice. I'm going to just be completely honest. If you're yeah. a three, you practice like a three. It just it just changes your approach to how you go about fall camp now. Understand, hey, some kids might have went home and called their mom and be like, hey, mom, I might be starting this year. Uh, just a heads up. So, yeah. you know, it, it kind of changes the way you're supposed to prepare, the way, you know, you have to prepare because now you might be the, guy, the starting left tackle come week one, and that's right around the corner. So all of a sudden your mental reps and everything go up. And you can tell, and Nick, you probably know this as well, from a coaching aspect, you coach that kid differently when he might be starting week one versus if this kid is just going to be, you know, you know, number two or number three on the depth chart. You still wanted to coach him to a certain degree, but when it's time for him to go, now, you know, now he's Intensify. sitting. Yeah, you know, he's sitting in the front of the classroom during meetings now. He's not in the back or in the middle, kind of just, you know, having a good old time. He's right front and center, probably next to the coach because he's got to Come sit by me. Grab that notepad. Come sit up front, son. Uh, you got some learning to do. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I I completely understand that. Just, uh, you know, and this is the type of news that we're getting, unfortunately. It's, you know, camps are usually hush-hush in terms of depth chart around now and, um, you know, or maybe some buzzy players you'll hear about every once in a while, but most of the time we just get the bad news right now because they're not, you know, uh, they don't have to talk to reporters like the NFL do and, and all that stuff. And uh, a lot more stuff is behind closed doors and all that good stuff. So that's why we don't have the extensive amount of notes about some of these teams. Like we do uh, NFL, you know, you know, I'm now, I don't know if you guys have paid attention, but I'll look at notes. That'll say who won each rep at, at practice uh, in camps and all that stuff. Like, uh, you know, corner versus uh wide receiver and running back versus linebacker and stuff like that. You get, you get can have notes for pretty much every team who's winning reps plus highlights from practices from people out there with their cell phones and everything. So it's just much more intense in the NFL. So uh, that's why it's mainly the bad news that we're getting yeah. right now. Not to we're not to go too far, you know, continue down the the uh, path here before we get to these teams. But uh, there was, uh, you know, I was I was looking at uh, day one reports from Syracuse and then you know, took that over to uh, a discord, the CFF site has a, a really great uh, discord. there, very active. And, you know, when, when something happens uh, that might impact, you know, CFF uh, relevant players or, or whatever uh, certainly can, can drive up some conversations, put something in there because, you know, one of the beat reporters had some video of a Rondé Gadsden, the second, uh, getting the first two targets in the red zone session uh, of uh, Syracuse's first practice. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Son of a yeah. NFL player, 6'5". News. You know, decent yeah. recruit. Uh, Syracuse, not really sure how that – we'll talk about Syracuse actually in just a couple of days. But um, not really sure how that wide receiver depth chart is going to work itself out. But it was funny that day two, uh, that same beat reporter tweeted out uh, – we were told 
you know, no video from the red zone session today. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, yep. not not that that shut it down. Targets uh, are going to be anything super special, but it was just sort of funny that that was the thing that you know caught my eye, and then the next day, the uh, coaching staff was like, oh, I remember no no video from from this part. Wasn't uh, Lincoln Riley very upset last year uh, for Oklahoma's practice because some guy was, was something sitting, on a, a parking oh, like, or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sitting, sitting on like the parking structure with binoculars yeah. watching practices or something. In like an Oklahoma student newspaper That's had a dormitory close enough to the practice facility that they could look on top of their dormitories over to the top of the the, the practice field, Jeez. and they were like, "Yeah." Have you noticed that Spencer Rattler's not getting number one reps the whole time? And that's what it was. And he was like, and so the right. next time. Yeah, it was the whole the whole yeah. thing with, is it Caleb Williams or Spencer Rattler? And so, now we know why that was news. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> guys, like, at the next practice, like, hold up sheets so, like, people couldn't, like, look <laughs> over the top. Yeah. I mean – just the links that that some people. I mean, just open it up. I, that, that that's what I would do. It's just a little bit much, you know. And that way, you could leak, you know, you could leak false information at that point too. So I don't know. It, it's it's all a big, it's all a big dance. Scott, so. it reminds me. If you right, Nick, you guys have probably seen Little Giants, and uh, he's standing there in the bushes, and he's like, "They're not even on the field. The running back is at the position of the center." And he's like, "They're standing around." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, oh yeah." Okay, cool. Like that's what that's exactly what I feel like you could do. Is you could just have kids in random areas, and the, and the news would be like, "Hey, so yeah, Caleb Williams lining about tight end. Yeah, he was going to get water." Well, well <laughs> uh, how about this report that I read the other day from Bills Camp? It was that uh, Singletary, Moss, and Taiwan Jones all went to the same uh, running. They went with the RB coach, and then James Cook, Duke Johnson, and uh, I can't remember who the other one was. I think Raheem Blackshear all went. To, to practice with the receiving running back coach. So it was like, uh, here's, well, why is it James Cook with the regular running backs? You know, it was one of those. It's like, does this matter day five of camp or whatever we're in? I mean, I just don't know that it matters that much. Like, they're working on routes, guys. These are rookies. So, you know, but uh, anyway, uh, you can get real granule in, in the NFL. You can't. But let's get into these team previews. We're starting at 70. I can't believe we're already at 70, by the way. We have, uh, feels like we've been flying through these, uh, you know, but we're at 70, which is Troy. And following a 31-24 win over rival South Alabama, Troy needed one more victory to become bowl eligible. But losses to Louisiana, App State, and Georgia State led to a 5-7 and seven record and cost head coach Chip Lindsey his job. DK has got their win total at 6.5. We have them at 7-5, and five, so we are slightly over this uh, 6.5 projection. And our projections have often been high on Troy, Nick, but uh, the Trojans disappointed are Lindsay winning five games three years in a row. Will new head coach John Summerall and a move to the Sunbelt West help Troy get back to a bowl game this season? I think it's certainly possible. Uh, and we, we have been high on Troy, the way that we calculate things. Troy consistently ranks toward the top, if not the top, in uh, roster strength in the Sun Belt uh, and has for the last couple of years. And so, you know, if we look at, at uh, the different categories where we break things out, sort of compare them to the win total overall, we have Troy favored in seven games, uh, just in our, our traditional, you know, all-encompassing model. The stats-only model, uh, which you would expect an underachieving team 
to not perform quite as well. And they still are favored in six of those uh, matchups this year. But the talent edge where we only look at, you know, roster strength and how that compares uh, to their opponents, we expect Troy to have the talent edge in 11 of their 12 regular season games. So, you know, John Sumrall is is absolutely uh, has inherited a, a, a roster that he can win with. I would think, you know, the, the new coaching staff uh, has has a lot of talent to work with. Um, by the way, the one obvious, probably obvious, but we don't expect uh, Troy to have the talent edge against Ole Miss in the opener. But every other, you know, uh, opponent on the schedule uh, and, and including every Sunbelt, uh, you know, rival, obviously. Um, but to get back to your you know specific question, I, I do think that the move because they were in the Sun Belt East, so they were going up against you know App State and, and uh, Georgia State, Georgia Southern, Coastal Carolina, obviously, the last couple of years. Um, moving over to the West, which we've discussed uh, pretty much with, with every other team in that division so far, is a very wide-open division. And I had actually kind of forgotten this. I think in our show where we uh, previewed Louisiana, I said, you know, our highest-rated uh, Sunbelt West team. I had forgotten that that because of the the shakeup uh, in the Sunbelt that Troy actually had, had moved over to the other division. So uh, Troy technically, uh, you know, is our Sunbelt West, at least if not the favorite, because they actually do go on the road, play Louisiana. Um, they're a slight underdog in that game, though it is a, you know, basically a pick them uh, less than a half a point projected point spread there. Uh, you know, Troy is basically our Sunbelt West uh, favorite or, or at the very least our highest rated team at this point in the preseason. And I, I think they could make a run. I mean, when you have a first time first year head coach, I'm always a little bit cautious, but we do factor that in, you know, do a, a generic head coach rating or excuse me, rating, um, for John Summerall, because we just don't really know quite what to make of him yet as a head coach. Uh, is going to bring Troy's overall team strength rating down just a little bit. But, um, you know, sometimes a coaching change can kind of ignite or, or you know, give a spark uh, to a program. And and with one as talented, with a team as talented as Troy is. And, and when I say talented, I mean, defensively, specifically, Troy ranks 13th nationally in our defensive roster strength. I mean, this is one of the uh certainly the, the most talented defense in the Sun Belt. Um but I mean number one defensive line, a top 10 defensive line uh nationally, number one in the Sun Belt, but that's with you know a couple of all Sun Belt uh selections and Will Cholo Jr., Javon Solomon, who's kind of a you know hybrid edge rusher. Uh Richard Gibnor didn't uh get you know first or second team all Sun Belt. Uh, but he's a 100-rated player like Cholo. So, I mean, that unit is absolutely stacked. But, you know, Jibinor, uh and Solomon were incredibly, incredibly productive last year. Uh, Solomon had 20 production points. And for an edge rusher, I mean, that's that's a, a huge, huge number. Uh, and Jibinor had 16. Um, so he's, he's right there. And, you know, those guys combined with – um, a potential All-American guy who's got a lot of All-American buzz in the past, Carlton Marshall, who's been there forever at linebacker. Um, I mean, a guy who has over 50 career production points. So, I mean, that's, you know, we look at a lot of counting stats for that. Um, so sometimes a linebacker can 
can maybe get a little bit overinflated. Um, but, you know, this guy has just been everywhere, has played forever. I think it might be a seventh season. Um, and it's it's absolutely, you know, that front seven specifically uh, is a unit that Troy is, is going to be able to win with, going to be a problem for a lot of Sunbelt teams. So if they can get a little bit of, uh, you know, improvement offensively, and this is a team that ranked 115th in offensive team performance last year, you know, they're going to have an opportunity to, to uh, make a, a pretty significant improvement in the win column, I think. Um, curious to see how the, the quarterback battle works itself out. Gunnar Watson is technically the returning starter. He didn't win that job out of camp last year, but was able to uh, eventually, you know, go on and, and uh, be the starter, uh, start the most games of the uh, second consecutive year. Seems like he's going to be tested by Peter Castelli, who I just uh, read an absolutely glowing blurb of in a local newspaper there. I hadn't realized how athletic uh, Castelli was, but it seems that he, you know, was putting up numbers like, 21 plus miles per hour in practice uh, speed wise, which probably would make him one of the faster quarterbacks in the country. I mean, that's, that's big time speed for any position, uh, but a transfer I mean, that's from like Utah, top end running back speed too. Absolutely. I mean, that's fast. And, you know, as a uh, described as a rocket for an arm. And now I haven't personally seen him. He did not play at Utah uh, last year when he uh, was a true freshman. Um, and I'm not a big recruiting guy, as I've said, you know, plenty before, but I do read a lot of, you know, blurbs and, and when, especially there's a number that you can, uh, you know, verify this was the speed number, um, that sticks out to me. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, Costelli wins this job or if Watson can hold him off, they've got. Uh, Kamani Vidal back at running back, somebody you can certainly build a running game around. There's some depth there as well, which Montez Woods, DK Billingsley, who's been a starter in the past. Charles Strong uh, was a power five transfer. Tez Johnson at wide receiver uh, flashed at times last year. They brought in Rajay Johnson from UAB who had some moments. Um, and the offensive line brings four starters back, including Austin Sidham, who was an awesome belt left tackle. So that unit struggled last year, ranked 123rd in offensive line, performance ratings. Um, but with Stidham, who's a 47 game starter with a new staff, uh, you know, some are all, uh, if, if memory serves, it has an offensive line background. So that's, uh, potentially, a, a, a good sign that they will, um, you know, take another, Oh, excuse me. Some are as a, a defensive coach, uh, my mistake, but still, um, you know, perhaps that unit is, is going to, be able to take a step forward and, and maybe Troy as a whole will as well. They're, they're certainly talented enough. Uh, the schedule sets up decently well. They do have to go to Louisiana, but you know, that is uh, they do have a buy an extra week to prepare leading up to that. Um, going to South Alabama and Louisiana, uh, you know, probably not the way you necessarily would draw it up, but uh, they're going to be competitive in, in both of those games. I think they're going to have an opportunity to win um, you know, every Sunbelt matchup, you know, they, they certainly might not get it done week in and week out. Um, but I think they're going to be competitive and, and, you know, there's no 
uh, automatic loss, especially in, in conference play on the schedule. So uh, Troy, we'll see, you know, maybe, maybe the coaching change kind of um, gets them going in the right direction. And if so, this is a team I think that could rise quickly, go from, you know, three straight losing seasons, as you mentioned, to uh, not only a bowl, but challenging uh, for that division title. Uh, Xavier, what are your thoughts on Troy? Do you think they could uh, challenge for a division title? Or are you a little less optimistic? What do you think about the Trojans here? I love Troy. I think this is a team that, you know, the Troy, a lot of people who just started watching the Sun Belt don't remember that Troy was one, next to App State. They were one of the more dominant teams in the Sun Belt, you know, in the mid-2010s, late into the late 2010s, and just really struggled to find their footing over the last three or four years. But this was a team that had, what was it, four straight, you know, 10-plus win seasons. So, you know, this is a team, this is a university who is used to having some type of success with their football team and only more recently has struggled uh, on that side of the, on that, on that, uh, on that end. I think this is the year that they definitely uh, can break out. Uh, I, I'm going, you know, with their over. I, I love them to win eight wins plus. Um, I like them to start the year off strong. Yeah, they do have a daunting first game, obviously, going to Oxford uh, and playing Ole Miss. But I think that's a really good start off for them. That's going to give them an entire idea of what that defense can really do against what is going to be more, you know, Lane Kiffin is an offensive guru. We all know this. He's going to scheme up well. If Troy can hold their own defensively, not saying they're going to win the game, but at least hold their own defensively, that's going to give them a ton of confidence going into the next stretch of games, which by all means, they're going to have to win at least three of the, yeah, two of their next three to really set a, you know, a tone for the rest of the year Uh, with App State, Marshall and Western Kentucky. You got to win at least two of those games. You got to start off at least two and you know uh, two and two. Bear, uh, excuse me. You have to start off at least three and two to give yourself an opportunity to make a run in this conference. Uh, it's really hard to dig yourself out of a hole. Uh, even though we'll be talking about Georgia State in this episode, uh, it's not easy to dig yourself out, the, out of a hole in the, in the Sun Belt. Um, I love them being in the West now. Uh, I think the West is we talked about this is wide open uh, with you know Louisiana being the you know the, the incumbent. They're not as strong as they have been. Um, so I really like them to make a run at this. They start. They showed at the end of last year that they could be competitive and defensively that they are really solid. Their only issue so far is whether or not their offense uh, can put points on the board. That, that's been the whole situation here. And if they can figure out their quarterback situation, um, and, and Nick, to your question, I think they might use a two-quarterback system. If he's as athletic as, you know, as, as advertised, there's no reason to keep him off the field, like zero. Um, and, you know, if he's that good, then you you got to play him. You got to find a way to play him. Um, heck, you know, the, the Saints even show him. Put him in a Taysom Hill role. Like, give him the football and let him do what he has to do as an athlete. Um, and especially, you know, you know, and go from there, right? So I, I really like what Troy brings to the table. Uh, I think they return back to some of their older days, some of their, you know, the, the quote-unquote golden years uh, over the, you know, from like 2012 to 2016, and they go back to winning ways. Um, and they're definitely going to compete for the Sun Belt West. And in my opinion, they got to, they have to be, your second favorite for the Sunbelt West at this point. All right. We move on here to uh, number 69, which is Boston College. BC opened up 4-0, but Phil Dracovic suffered a hand injury week two that cost him six games. They fell to 0-4 in ACC play before he returned to the lineup, and uh, they finished 6-6 six and six last season. Six and a half is their DK, DK win total. We have them at 6-6, six and six, so we're on the under for BC at six and a half. And Nick, though the military ball was canceled, Boston College and ball eligibility for the sixth straight year. 
We've got a new offensive coordinator to bring a more progressive style of play here. And I'll say your line with the new OC, how high can the Eagles fly, Nick? Oh, that hurt. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate that. Yes, I'm trying. You. It's for you. So, <laughs> Nick is the boss here, people. So I got to say this line. You know. uh, <laughs> BC is a, a kind of a tricky one for me, honestly, because there is a lot to like, um, especially with a healthy Phil Dracovic, uh, with Zay Flowers, arguably one of the top playmakers in the ACC, somebody who probably, uh, you know, would have been drafted had he decided to, to leave as a junior, um, opted to come back. I'm reading a lot of, you know, things about the, uh, the new OC is, you know, making comments to the effect of, Hey, you know, Zay Flowers came back. There was also some, uh, if not outright saying some, some sort of, uh, vague references to, Hey, there were some folks sniffing around wanting to get him to transfer maybe to a, uh, you know, top tier, uh, program uh, opted to come back and, and Hey, we're going to basically build this offense in a way that Zay flowers is going to uh, be set up to potentially have the uh, best receiving season any Boston college player has ever had. So, you know, you, I take notice of quotes like that and, and think, all right, you know, even though kind of the, the background um, and the way our, you know, statistical projections shake out uh, with John McNulty. He's been at Notre Dame the last two years, Rutgers before that. It, it's not necessarily his background doesn't necessarily suggest they're going to be um, a pass first, pass second type offense. Um, doesn't even necessarily suggest that they're going to be super creative, uh, but you know, when somebody comes in and, and has an opportunity to call an offense uh, for the first time ever or for the first time in a while, it's not necessarily, you know, set in stone what happened last year. What happened in the last few years is, is what's going to happen in the future. So has a, 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 a potential star in Zay Flowers who you can move around, do different things. You know, at Boston College, he's been involved in the run game in the past. Um, they do have a couple of interesting running backs. Pat Garwo, the second is back. Alex Singfield has been a weapon as a receiver out of the backfield. Uh, Xavier Coleman, who is, um, you know, a, a pretty highly for Boston College uh, rated running back recruit uh, when he came in last year. It sounds like he's getting some work at wide receiver as well. They brought in tight end George Tax uh, from Notre Dame, uh, kind of get him out of Michael Mayer's shadow a little bit, 6'6", 250 in that range, uh, also athletic. Um, you know, he and Joey Lucchetti should probably be uh together be one of the top tight end duos in the ACC would expect a lot of 12 personnel get both those guys on the field at the same time there's an opportunity for Boston College to be you know pretty creative and potentially pretty explosive offensively the biggest concern though of course is uh four starting offensive linemen left after the end of last year, one drafted in the first round in Zion Johnson, the other three signed as undrafted free agents. Uh, but then the fourth, a potential All-American and 
hearing some you know buzz of of another early round draft pick, uh, right guard Christian Mahogany uh, suffered a torn ACL unfortunately in May and is likely to miss uh, the entire season. So Boston College now ranks you know bottom of the bottom uh, or very very close to it in basically every offensive line returning production category. I mean uh, only four. Uh, combined starts among players on the roster. Uh, and that spread across two players with two starts each. 11.2% of their total snaps from last year. So it's not even like guys who are backups had an opportunity to play a lot in blowouts or were able to work themselves into the lineup uh, for other injuries or, or things like that. BC's been pretty consistently healthy on the offensive line. Um, if memory serves, you know, so, so a lot of these guys just didn't get a whole lot of playing time, uh, to Ozzy, uh, Tapilo and Jack Conley, uh, made over 150, uh, snaps played over 150 snaps last year, but everybody else was 15 or fewer. So, uh, that's also not really a position, you know, at least according to, to what I've got here in front of me in our FPS team profiles, they didn't bring an offensive line transfer in. So, it's, it's a very uh, inexperienced, untested unit that lost a lot of talented players uh, who play a lot of football together. I mean, just looking at the, the guys, the four I've mentioned who were, uh, you know, either out of eligibility or, or left for the NFL draft, those four combined to make 168 career starts together. And then Mahogany had 22 more. So um, that unit, you know, completely different and it's a big, big unknown. So there certainly are a lot of weapons offensively, but, you know, is Phil Dracovic going to have enough time to operate? You know, are they going to be able to keep him healthy uh, with an offensive line that's as unproven as it is? And, and, you know, defensively, they've been moving in the right direction under Jeff Hapley. And and I have a lot of respect for him as a uh, defensive uh, coach as he was coming up before he got this job and think that they've got a pretty good staff there. Um, but this was far from a, you know, dominant defense uh, in, in years past as well. So it, it's going to be a, a little bit of a concern. And, you know, defensively, I do know for a fact, had a lot of injuries uh, last year. Do do remember, and there's still some uh, carryover, some guys who are still working through some things on the defensive side of the ball. But, um, you know, that, that unit should be a strength, um, but it also has, you know, some, some questions uh, as well, just because they haven't stepped up to become um, a defense first team necessarily uh, either, which you might expect with a, a defensive minded head coach. So it's a little difficult to get a read on Boston College. Their roster strength numbers uh, have uh, you know, increased with adding players through the transfer portal like Dracovic, uh, like Tactics, you know, landing guys like Zay Flowers who've been productive. Uh, Pat Garlow had an all ACC caliber season last year, also productive. Um, so their their roster strength numbers are a little bit higher than what their recruiting uh, history would would suggest. Um, so it's not like, you know, oh, this is one of the least talented rosters among Power Five teams. Uh, but it's certainly not at the higher end either, and and there's a lot of uh, a lot of production lost that that has to be replaced. So if Dracovic is healthy, if they're able to get creative, 
um, get Flowers the football early and often and, and you know, use those talented tight ends. Um, Boston College, I think, has an opportunity to uh, win a lot of games. They're, they're certainly uh, in the projections, you know, quite a few projected one-score games against Virginia Tech, Florida State, Louisville, Wake Forest, um, you know, Syracuse. The only problem is that everybody I said, uh, the first four or five of those, we actually have Boston College as an underdog. So um, they're going to have to win some games that you might not necessarily expect them to, uh, to, to get over this uh, win total. They're going to have to stay a little healthier at quarterback and, and on defense. Um, but they are a team that if, uh, if these ifs line up, um, they certainly, you know, could make some noise, could knock off uh, some teams. They get Clemson at home. They get Louisville at home. Um, you know, they have to go to NC State, but late in the year, that's, you know, going to be perhaps a, a high pressure uh, spot. They have to go to Virginia Tech, but that's early in the year with a first year head coach. So maybe that's not quite as daunting. So, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses throughout. And that just sort of pulls me in in different directions with Boston College. I don't quite know uh, exactly uh, how I feel about them overall. It's, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster. Uh, but, you know, we do project 500. We do project to get back to a bowl. Um, but as you mentioned, that is slightly under that six and a half win total. Xavier, so your thoughts on BC here. Can a new offense really start to click here with them? You know, I have a, I have a hot take with Phil Jorkovich in that team. I, I feel like Will Levis took Phil Jorkovich's hype. I'll be honest. Oh, okay. yeah, I do. I, I genuinely think. Are you trying Phil to tell me that Phil Chakovic puts mayonnaise in his coffee? <laughs> or maybe he should have, and he'd get I a little think, more. I mean, I, you know, the breakfast of champions. <laughs> um, you know, I, I genuinely think if he was healthy last year and was able to, you know, be with a, a Boston College team, I think with him healthy ends with eight or nine wins. Um, this is a team last year that, you know, gave Clemson all they could handle. The Clemson team that, yes, they had a down year, still finished 10 and three. Um, I genuinely just think that if he stays healthy, all the hype that's going to Will Levis goes to him, and it's not even a question. Um, when I look at uh, this team going this year, yes, obviously my biggest concern is their offensive line. Whether or not they're going to actually be able to protect him is a huge question mark. However, I will say that with this offense, I expect Phil to be giving, getting the ball out of his hand faster uh, for them to definitely be taking more shots. This isn't going to be your Boston College with A.J. Dillon back there running the ball 35 times a game. Uh, so I do think there's going to be games where they, you know, decide that this is just going to be a shootout, and that's what we're going to have to live with. Uh, and I don't, I think that, you know, it could be a possible strength for them. I feel like all the time with Boston College, if you scored, you know, 10 points, if you got a 10-point lead on Boston College, the game was over because their offense just didn't have the firepower to come back, um, and their scheme just wasn't built for that kind of situation. On the flip side, this year it could be completely different. I honestly think they could start 3-1, and 4-0. and um, I'm not a believer in Florida State at all. Um, Virginia Tech at Blacksburg is not is never an easy contest. I think that might be Virginia Tech's first home game of the year as well, which we all know how that goes. Uh, actually, no, it would be their second. Oh no, yeah, it will be the first. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so we all know how that goes. You know, um, I think that that would be a that's going to be a very daunting task. And heck, even you know Virginia Tech before we knew that North Carolina wasn't going to be that team last year. You know, pretty much stifled Sam Howell and those guys, and, and you know when they were ranked pretty highly last season. Uh, they're going to have to just – the way that they navigate the first half of the season is going to be huge for Boston College. Uh, you know, they play, at, like I said, at Florida State, uh, Louisville, and then Clemson. If you can get through those – you know, through that three games without, you know, maybe going two and one um, in, that, in that run, 
I think the back half of their schedule was rather – I won't say easy, but you've got winnable games in here. Uh, Wake, uh, Wake Forest is going to be difficult. UConn, Duke, that should both be wins. Uh, at NC State, let's see what they look like by that point. Uh, Syracuse should be a win. And then at Notre Dame, I think, would be the only – you know, the, the bona fide loss that I give them in that second half of the year. This is a team that should absolutely, at the bare minimum, win seven games. I'm going to go with the over. I like Jerkovic a lot. Uh, or Djokovic, I, I, I really like his game. Uh, I think that his injury, I think he's going to have to show a little bit more athleticism this year, obviously with uh, the offensive line play. But Boston College just kind of consistently puts out good offensive line talent. And whether or not, you know, the coaching is something that I'm going to be buying into this year with them um, on the offensive line, yes, they're going to be young and inexperienced, but so are all the guys that got drafted this past year at one point, right? And then they all of a sudden all, you know, they gave four guys who end up with uh, on NFL rosters this year slash you know, a guy this year that would have ended up on an NFL roster uh, if healthy. So, you know, I, I genuinely think I'm going to buy into their coaching here and just say their offensive line, rather, uh, where young will have the coaching to be, you know, still above average. Um, and I think if they're allowed and if they're able to pass the, the football, like, you know, they're alluding to, their defense is good enough to keep them in games if, you know, Djokovic isn't getting what he needs to out of his receivers or out of himself. Uh, so I think they're going over. They're going to barely get over. I'm giving them seven wins. Uh, but I think I think we see a bounce back here for him as well. And he's like I said, he's he's still a sleeper for me going into this year as just being a really really solid quarterback in college football. We go over to number sixty eight, Virginia Tech here. Virginia Tech op- opened the season with an upset win over UNC, but struggled with consistency throughout the rest of the year. They finished six and seven uh, with an embarrassing fifty four to ten loss to Maryland. In the pinstripe bowl, uh, DK has got their uh, over at six and a half. We have them at six and six. So once again, another under here. The question here, Nick, is with the Hokies underachieving under Justin Fuente, who also saw a significant downgrade in roster strength during his tenure. Can Penn State DC Brent Pry, former Penn State uh, Penn State DC Brent Pry, get more out of this roster and continue to build it and make it better because we're not used to this at Virginia Tech. They're usually pretty strong. I, you know, kind of similar to what I was saying with Boston College. It's difficult for me to get a read on Virginia Tech. The one thing that I do know is Brent Pry is um, one, you know, top 10 defensive coordinator. Uh, Literally, according to our defensive coordinator rankings, uh, he is seventh. And he will be calling the defense this year. uh, But also he's a first-time head coach and so um a little bit curious to see how that works itself out on the one hand he's got talent to work with in roster strength uh you know that that number you mentioned uh moving in the wrong direction i mean virginia tech the last two or three years was you know top 25 top 30 roster um they didn't quite play up to that that level last year they ranked 88th in overall team performance 81st on offense 87th on defense um but they ranked 60th in roster strength and and i wouldn't expect you know virginia tech to be in the uh bottom 10 of power five top bottom 15 of power five rosters is in terms of overall talent and then offensively they rank 86th in roster strength. So um, fortunately for Pry, being a, a you know well-established, uh, very, very good, if not elite defensive coordinator, you know, he has top 20 talent to work with on the defensive side of the ball. They rank 18th in 
defense, uh, excuse me, defensive roster strength, um, top 25 in defensive returning production. Um, so it, it's got the, you know, Virginia Tech has the potential, I think, to be a really, really good defense, take a big step forward defensively. Their offense wasn't that great before. Uh, probably, you know, not as talented this year as they were last year when they were, like I mentioned, 81st in, in offensive team performance. And, you know, with a, a defensive-minded head coach, I'm, I'm wondering, are we going to see uh, kind of a, a little bit of a throwback to some 21 to 17 type games, some 14 to 10 uh, type games with a potentially pretty ugly offense, um, but a really solid defense keeping Virginia Tech, you know, in a lot of games and the matchups that they've got uh, probably, you know, <laughs> could it, it could work out. They've, they've got a really, really tough four game stretch. Uh, in October, where they go to North Carolina, to Pitt, home against Miami, an off week, and then at NC State on a Thursday night. But everything else they've got, I mean, you know, they're going to have an opportunity to to win uh, those games, and they're probably going to have an opportunity to shut down a lot of those offenses. Um, you know, some teams that we have just talked about Boston College. That that's uh, going to be an interesting matchup, a, a fun one in that week two uh, meeting. West Virginia offensively challenged the last few years, making a change at offensive coordinator and you know bringing in a high profile uh, quarterback transfer. So there's certainly some uh, potential that that's going to be a, a an improved unit. But you know I'm not necessarily sold on that. Later in the year, they've got teams like Georgia Tech, Duke. Liberty, who uh, obviously lost their uh, program, you know, changer quarterback in Malik Willis, uh, and Virginia that's undergoing a lot of changes. And, and so uh, Virginia Tech is, is I think, uh, with the exception of that pretty brutal middle of the, the schedule, you know, on a uh, even footing talent-wise uh, with its first four opponents and with its last four opponents, if not, even an, an edge perhaps, and, and certainly on the defensive side of the ball. Um, so it's just a little bit of a question. Is that defense going to be as good as it's got the potential to be? Is the offense, you know, perhaps going to be better than my fairly low expectations? Um, it's, it's an open question. So uh, I, I, I don't necessarily have a good read on it yet. It, it's just my gut is telling me, Virginia Tech is potentially going to take a, a pretty um, potentially like really lean into the uh, we're going to play good defense, special teams, and you know try to win some ugly games. So uh, the offensive play caller is Tyler Bowen, who was on the staff of the Jacksonville Jaguars last year. Was at Penn State before that, uh, you know, on the staff with Pry. Obviously, um, he is is uh, not has not been an offensive play caller. Uh, at least the last few years. So uh, a little bit of an unknown there as well. It's, it's a, it's a little bit of an open question there. There certainly are a lot of winnable games. Um, uh, Bowen has an offensive line background also was, was uh, offensive line coach at Maryland uh, was a play caller at Fordham in 2016. I believe that was when uh, 
Joe Moorhead was the head coach, if, if memory serves. So, you know, perhaps there's a little bit of, of uh, opportunity. He's a young guy, probably wants to show what he can do as a first-time uh, FBS or Power 5 play caller. Um, but it's it's still, you know, certainly an open question. They've got a couple of transfer quarterbacks competing. Grant Wells, it sounds like, has a little bit of a uh, lead on Jason Brown in that uh, competition to, to be the starting quarterback. Malachi Thomas at running back showed – you know, some pretty promising things as a true freshman last year. That's a, 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 a position group that Virginia Tech has recruited pretty well in recent years. Not a whole lot of, of actual on-field production other than, you know, Thomas's freshman season last year, but potentially a, a unit that's got some promise. They did bring in a, a productive uh, transfer at wide receiver, Jaden Blue from Temple, uh, but he's taking a step up in competition. They did bring you know, Caleb Smith back, who's a big body wide receiver, sounded like had a great spring, was was impressive. But they're another team that's got a new look offensive line. They do have a little bit more uh, experience, do return four guys who uh, played over 400 snaps last year, but only one full-time starter. So there's, there's just a lot of questions. There's a lot of unknowns with Virginia Tech. I expect they'll play a lot of close games, potentially a lot of ugly games, and and we'll see. I don't necessarily trust a first-time, first-year head coach um, to come out on top in a lot of one-score games, but when you have a talent advantage, especially on the defensive side of the ball, you know there's, there's certainly going to be an opportunity. So uh, Virginia Tech's a team that, I think has a pretty wide range of potential outcomes. And and I think most uh, are going to be, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I I feel like we're on the right side being on the under. I think it's just a little bit safer, Uh, but you know, sometimes when you're playing a lot of uh, close games, especially if you're kind of dictating how that game is played and, and if, you know, you get your opponent to to sort of bend to your will, and Virginia Tech does want to play. If it's if it is in fact, uh, if it does want to play, kind of an ugly game, low scoring game. You know, sometimes you you are able to come out on top more often than not. So uh, they could be back in the bowl, but it also wouldn't surprise me if this is a little bit of a transition year, and you know, we do see a, a little bit of a step back in the the win column to a. Uh, five-win type team. Xavier, your thoughts on Vodtech. Do you think the offense can put enough together to help out this defense, or do you think we're looking at a little middle-of-the-road team for this I, season? I think, I think you're going to look at exactly the same team that was able to beat North Carolina last year in the first game of the year, 17-10, to 10, and then you know couldn't beat any team last year that had a semblance of an offense. Uh, they're they're going to be they're going to struggle. They're going to have to win a lot of their games. You know, as Nick said, twenty one to you know seventeen, twenty one ten. Uh, you know, um, they're going to have to keep teams under four scores. That was kind of their remedy last year. If they kept you under four scores, they won. Um, you know, the only game that that didn't happen in was when they lost uh, to West Virginia, 27-21, but technically that's still four scores. Uh, so I, I think that this defense is going to have to be amazing for them to win these games. Um, and I think that you're going to look at another transition year uh, where Pry absolutely is going to recruit the heck out of some defense. And you see it already, um, you know, out of the four stars that they brought in, two of them, uh, two out of the three of them were all defense, uh, you know, the defensive line and the cornerback. Uh, they brought in a ton of defensive talent as a whole last year. 
And I think that that's what you're going to expect out of Virginia Tech this year. Um, you know, maybe a little Beamer Bowl is, is is what Nick was kind of leading, alluding to there. I just didn't want to, you know, I, I, I don't think he wanted to coin the term to get uh, Virginia Tech fans a little bit too excited. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think you're going to see them, you know, have to do this to win ball games. Uh, their schedule is not very easy in the middle of the road, like Nick was alluding to. Uh, they have an early bye week. Uh, I, I really see them as a team that they have to, you know, they, they have to to start off well. You know, this is a team that's going to have a lot of confidence or need a lot of confidence built into it so that they can roll with the punches next year with a brand new coach, uh, with a new system, especially. Um, and honestly, I'm not too huge of a fan of head coaches calling either defenses or offenses uh, uh, solely by themselves. I think they need other people to do so uh, with them. And at that point, then it's okay. Uh, but him doing it all by himself, I feel like he'll, he'll, maybe, you know, give off those, um, give those, that duty to somebody else by mid middle of the year. I just feel like it's a little bit too much for them to have to do that. Uh, you know, cause that middle pass between Pitt, Miami, NC state is going to be so tough. And if they haven't started off well, if they, you know, that they trip up against, you know, West Virginia, Boston college and that North Carolina, they start off, you know, two and four, you know, three and five, something like that going into that stretch you're really asking yourself to be perfect at that point. I'm going to go with the under with Virginia Tech, even though six and a half wins isn't a ton. I think they miss a bowl game barely in, in prize first year. I'm going to give them five and seven. Uh, I think they win the games as they're supposed to. So they beat Old Dominion. They beat Wofford. They beat Georgia, they beat Georgia Tech. And they beat Liberty. After that, it's a complete crapshoot. Um, I think, you know, maybe at North Carolina is the other game I'll give them. And then after that, you, you really have to, you know, figure out a way to win you know, those other games. And I just don't see it in a, in, a, in a ACC this year that I think the middle of it is going to be very, very daunting with the likes of Pitt not completely dropping off with Kenny Pickett, adding Keaton Slovis with Virginia, you know, and, and, and those teams as well. Uh, so I'm going to go with the under. I don't think it'll, I still think it'll be a successful first year for Pry um, in the fact that it's a new identity um, and they're going to get back to what, you know, Virginia Tech fans are used to great defense, great special teams. And he's already hitting the recruiting trail so hard. Uh, there are, they, they've got 17 hard commits as we're talking, uh, which, if you know anything, if all 17 of those guys come in, they only have eight more scholarship players to bring. Uh, so, you know, Brent Pry is doing what he did at Penn State. He's recruiting well in that area, he's going to bolster the defense. Um, and yeah. I think Virginia Tech gets back to what it's supposed to do, what it used to do, um, but not this year uh, in the win column. All right, let's go over to 67 Liberty. And despite some impressive performances, including a 56 to 20 victory over Eastern Michigan in the bowl game and wins over both teams like Old Dominion, UAB, Middle Tennessee State, North Texas, eight and five felt somewhat disappointing for Liberty and uh, NFL QB. Malik Willis. Their DK total is six and five, six and a half wins. We have them at seven and five. So we're over the six and a half. But Nick, with Willis gone and the returning production ranking in the hundreds on both sides of the ball, are the Flames due to uh, due for a big step back in 2022? Or will Hugh Freeze keep this team bowl eligible in their final season as an independent? I, I think Hugh Freeze is, is sort of a known commodity on offense seems to to regardless of um whether he has an nfl quarterback or not usually puts together a, a pretty good offensive team and i think has uh you know they they did bring in charlie brewer who has played a lot of football 41 career starts um at baylor and then last year at utah had a few um you know he may or may not 
actually win the job. Caden Salter was a really highly rated uh, recruit coming out of high school who found his way to Liberty after transferring from Tennessee. Uh, I believe there might have been an off-the-field uh, situation that, that kind of led to that. And then Jonathan Bennett is, is apparently also in the mix. Um, once that, you know, competition solidifies itself, um, I think Liberty's probably going to be in pretty good shape because even though the numbers, you know, they, they did lose a lot of production. Willis was certainly a big part of that. Um, there's plenty, I think, left over to work with. Uh, the receiving core did unfortunately suffer a, a pretty big uh, injury when CJ Daniels returning starter went down with an ACL tear in March and it looks like he's going to be out for the year. Uh, but they are getting a couple of guys back who missed pretty big chunks of last year in CJ Yarbrough and JVM Lofton. Um, they also brought in Caleb Sneed, who was a pretty you know interesting ad from Campbell at the FCS level. Uh, started 25 games there. Didn't put up huge numbers, but he's a big target, 6'4", 205. They also brought in Day-Day Hunter, uh, who's probably you know going to be penciled in as, as that top running back, but will share uh, the the role with TJ Green and Cedric Lewis, who's back. Lewis, of course, uh, gets involved in the passing game as well. Um, and I didn't even mention you know some of their guys who've been there for a while, uh, like Demario Douglas, um, who was really productive last year as a receiver, one of uh, one of Willis's you know top targets uh, and, and best weapons. So it's I, I think offensively probably going to work itself out. The offensive line was a pretty well performing unit last year, ranked 35th in O line performance. Three starters are back. They also added you know three guys in the transfer portal, uh, at least two of which are, are going to start, and the other is you know Zavion Gadlin played a, a lot at Tulsa. So I, I think that unit is going to be pretty good. And then I actually think you know personally the defense is better than the offense. So if, if there are still some questions on offense, but you know, and I, I will admit I'm not the biggest Hugh freeze fan, uh, but he seems to do a pretty good job of getting his offense ready to play. And then, you know, defensively, you actually have a, a unit that's um, I think, you know, going to be pretty uh, disruptive, especially up front. Um, they moved, you know, they, they had sort of a, a, a wealth of edge rushers, guys like Trayshawn Clark, Darrell Johnson, Akil Washington, uh, to the point where they actually converted Washington to more of a stand-up linebacker role to try to get everybody on the field at the same time. They brought in transfers, guys like Drake Butler, uh, add a little bit of, you know, heft up front. He's a transfer from Auburn, former four-star guy, uh, also brought in, uh, Dennis Osiegi, who played 30 games at the FCS level, excuse me, started 30 games, played over 40 at Stephen F. Austin, uh, you know, transfer from there, has a lot of experience in his career. So I think that defensive line is going to be pretty good. The linebacker core, they're, you know, not super experienced, but when you put Washington there, they bring in a Juco transfer, Mike Smith. Sounds like he's got a really good shot to uh, start. I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be just fine there. Um and, you know, Tyron Dupree, Ahmad Walker got not necessarily starting uh, production last year, but uh, were certainly in the mix. Both played, you know, 200 snaps in, in that range. Uh, Walker actually a little bit more. 
There's some turnover in the secondary, but Chris Meganson, Javon Scruggs, both of those guys are back. Um, and then there are some, you know, guys getting healthy. Uh, they brought in Kobe Singleton uh, to potentially start, who, you know, also stepping up a level from FCS Southern Utah, but was productive and a starter um, as a freshman there. So it, it's kind of an interesting mix, as it always is with Liberty, guys who basically had no uh, major history that we knew of from a uh, you know, high school recruiting standpoint, because this was a transition program uh, not that long ago, to then also you know, bringing in transfers who were either highly rated guys or, or you know, productive guys in other places, uh, whether it's dropping down from a Power 5 level or you know, coming up from the FCS level. So far, and you know, it, it can be bumpy at times. This team somewhat inexplicably lost to ULM last year, one of the one of the biggest, if not the biggest, upset in college football. Uh, but they they also have you know been competitive, have, have been a tough team to beat. And when it all works, and and it certainly did in that bowl game against Eastern Michigan, when they just absolutely blew out. Uh, you know, the Eagles, it, 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 you know, this is a pretty dangerous team. And you mentioned this is their last year as an independent. They will be moving to Conference USA. They'll probably immediately, you know, be a, a uh, conference champion contender, championship contender. Um, so how will they sort of transition this year? There's a lot of winnable games. There's really only, you know, four where you say, okay, they, they probably should be an underdog against Wake Forest against BYU, Arkansas, and Virginia Tech. But I'm not even sure, you know, based on our Virginia Tech conversation and what we know about that team, that they'll even be a, a, a real underdog uh, in that game because that it is at home. It's late in the season. Uh, and who knows what Virginia Tech will be at that time. And then every other game, you know, they are favored in our projections and, and potentially uh, could be favored by the odds makers as well. So this is a team where, you know, Seven and a half wins seems uh, that's our our actual uh, win projection. Um, in some cases, you know, seems like it could be a little on the low side. So I'm I'm a bit surprised, even though they lose Willis, that this win total number is lower because this is is very very close to hitting that full one win plus or minus uh, where our numbers, you know, really, really have performed well the last couple of years. This is when we see a pretty big edge. It's, it's not officially in that uh, realm, but it's, it's quite close. I think, you know, over six and a half for this group of teams, um, I feel more comfortable in sort of our projection for Liberty than I have in uh, any of the three we've discussed so far. And, and uh, really, teams that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. It, it seems like seven wins is is um, maybe the floor, in my opinion, for Liberty. I mean, certainly things can go sideways. Uh, weird things can happen. And sometimes, you know, transfers, new faces don't necessarily work out. Um, but this schedule is pretty soft outside of those Power 5 opponents that, that we discussed. And, and I think um, Liberty's probably going to have a chance to, you know, maybe surprise one or two of those teams. So, I think seven and five is is pretty likely, and and eight or nine wins is certainly possible. Xavier, are you as optimistic about the Flames as Nick is? I mean, uh, you know, Malik Willis leaving seems like a big, big blow here, uh, but uh, you know, uh, Nick seems to be fairly confident in them. I think the Flames are going to flame out. 
I had to do oh. it. I mean, yeah. it, that's just yeah. as bad as how high can the Eagles soar. So yes, anyway. let's go. We're getting them in today. We're getting the dad jokes are flowing here. I had to match Nick's energy today. Uh, no, I, I just think that this is going to be a tough year for them. Um, when you lose a guy as talented as Malik Willis, when you lose as much talent as they had, uh, I think they are going to start 0-3. Uh, I, I think at, at that point you have to build from there. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think they beat Southern Miss, UAB, or at Wake Forest. I think wow. after that, yes. Yes, you can absolutely make a run playing Akron, Old Dominion, UMass, and Gardner-Webb. So you can be 4-3 and three by the time you get to the BYU game. Uh, so you can still save your season. Uh, I just think when you're when you're talking about a team that, I, that, you know, has pretty much lost a guy who I think in another year with as down as people were with the quarterbacks going into this year's class, might have been a first-round draft pick. Um, I also think even last year with as great as he was, they only went 8-5 and five for a reason. Uh, and that's not just because Malik had a couple of, you know, porous games. I think that's more indicative of the unit itself because it wasn't always just on him. Uh, so when you look at it that way, you know, I just see them really struggling against some of your top or t- against some of your, your higher tier talent on their schedule. They'll handle business against, you know, the likes of UConn, New Mexico State. Um, and like, you know, when, when they have to play BYU at home, that'll be a toss up. I think I'm going to lean towards BYU. Um, and, you know, outside, I just mm, do I want to go under? Yeah, yeah, I kind of do. I kind of do. Uh, even though under could definitely be six games, uh, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable saying that this is a team that scratches bowl eligibility rather than saying this is a team that's just going to be a bona fide, you know, seven, eight win ball club when they only won eight games with arguably the best quarterback in this year's draft. So I, I am not, you know, uh, a fan of how much turnover is going to be necessary for this football team for them to replicate what they did last season. Uh, so I'm going to go with the under. Once again, that still means they can make a bowl game. But like I said, I, I really genuinely believe that I think they start over three this year. All right, we move over to team number 66, the fifth team we're talking about today is Air Force. And Air Force capped a 10 and three season with a 31 28 victory over Louisville in the first responders bowl. Falcons lost to Utah State, San Diego State, and Army by combined 17 points. And those teams together won 32 games last season. DK's a little high on them, eight and a half, which would be tied. Uh, which will be the highest total that we've seen up to this point on the win total. Uh, we've got them at eight and four, so just slightly under that eight and a half. But Nick, there were some comments made by head coach Troy Calhoun this summer uh, that cast some doubt on the availability of QB Hazik Daniels, running about Brad Roberts and some others. How much concern should we have about those injuries coming in to 2022? I mean, maybe that's coach speak. These injuries could be bad as well, but I feel like you kind of have to take him serious if any coach talks about an injury at all whatsoever, right? Yeah, I think most of the time you do. I personally have a, a little bit of a hard time trusting Troy Calhoun to tell me the truth on injuries. Just, you know, I I actually just looked uh, and finally there is a 2022 Air Force uh, online football roster. Air Force is consistently the last team in college football to update uh, their online roster, I believe in 2020. I'm not sure if they ever actually put a, an updated roster. Uh, uh, so, you know, there, there's just a little bit of a, a you know, mystery sometimes uh, behind who is even on the team, <laughs> let alone uh, who's going to play and, and all that stuff. So I, I saw the comments and it certainly uh, has created some buzz in, in some corners um, I, I've kind of uh, gone 
with the the now assumption, I guess, that Hazik Daniels and Brad Roberts are going to play probably every game. They're probably going to play it close to 100%. I just, that that's just sort of what I'm choosing to assume now. And, and part of that might be because I know, and, and you mentioned, you know, we are under that eight and a half. Uh, I know that Air Force is a team that, you know, our roster strength numbers, as we always talk about with uh, military academy uh, programs, uh, just don't quite capture um, the, the the talent on hand, maybe as, as well as the 128 other teams. Uh, and perhaps, you know, we're always a little too low on a team like Air Force. They grade out incredibly well in team performance. I mean, this was a top 20 team on the field last year. They ranked 17th in overall team performance. They were 27th on offense, 24th on defense. And they bring back for Air Force a pretty uh, pretty good number. I mean, they rank 69th in overall returning production, 70th on offense, 79th on defense. For a team like Air Force, who is often senior laden, uh, often has to replace uh, a, a lot of starters on both sides of the ball, this is a pretty veteran team. And, and some of these guys have been playing for a while. Guys, guys like Roberts and Daniels, multi-year starters. Um, if they get Kyle Patterson, the, the tight end healthy uh, and back at full speed, some other players that have seen significant playing time, DeAndre Hughes, who uh, has been a wide receiver, seems like he's probably going to play a little bit more running back, especially if Roberts is limited. Uh, Dane Kinneman, who played defense, also played, uh, made a lot of plays on offense in a variety of roles last year. Uh, ben Jefferson, Emmanuel Mikel. I mean, there's, there are some experienced playmakers offensively, and unfortunately, they they lost Micah Davis, who was perhaps the most exciting uh, of those players to the transfer portal. But uh, or you know had the the biggest upside was a a real big play guy last year before an injury uh, limited him late in the season. Um, but uh, you know I, I feel like with so much returning. Even if they don't get a hundred percent out of Daniels, I mean, I, I've read a lot of really good things about the backup quarterback Zach Larrier, who I believe uh, is, you know, I, I'm going to mess up the, the uh, distance, but you know, 200 meter or whatever it is, hurdle champion in the the Mountain West. So, you know, one of the fastest players on the team. I, I'm kind of interested to see what he is going to look like in a bigger role. Sounds like. You know, he certainly would be in line to take snaps at quarterback if Daniels is limited. But even if not, it also, you know, Calhoun's made some comments to suggest that uh, he's going to get involved, you know, as a running back. So that'll be interesting to see how he fits in to this group. Uh, The offensive line, they lost some talented guys, certainly Um, lost, you know, Hawk Wimmer. Uh, was very experienced and and uh, a really good offensive lineman for them last year. But they bring back three full time starters, bring back a lot of guys who played. Um, you know, count them up: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight guys had over 170 snaps last year on the offensive line. So um, that's a unit that ranks 16th in O line team performance. Probably going to be a, a pretty uh, difficult team to contend with offensively and, and especially uh, you know, they're, they're not quite the same triple option as army and, and Navy, but they're a unique offense and pretty creative in, in the ways that they can get 
the football to their playmakers. So certainly going to be an offense to contend with. And defensively, you know, they, they did lose a uh, big-time performer at defensive end, Jordan Jackson, who was actually a six-round draft pick. Um, they have to replace DeMonte Meeks, who's one of their best, most productive, most talented linebackers, and Milton Bug the third, Corbin Taylor. Uh, in the secondary, we're, we're certainly productive, experienced players, but, you know, they have a lot coming back as well. Vince Sanford, highly, highly productive. Uh, I was talking about the Troy uh, players earlier and, you know, 20 production points being a, a big, big number uh, for, you know, guys up front for them. Vince Sanford, 23 production points last year. TD Blackman, if he comes back fully healthy, you know, has the potential to, to uh, certainly be, uh, a big time performer at linebacker for them. Alex Mock kind of rounds out that unit. Really, really good linebacking core uh, that even our numbers don't quite capture as as well as uh, they could. You know, they have some experience at safety, have some experience in the interior defensive line, but you know, I kind of trust Air Force uh, to be above average defensively. They were a top twenty five unit last year, as we mentioned. They've been top 50, you know, three years in a row, top 70 uh, before that. So pretty consistent uh, defensive track record. And then offensively, if health, you know, works itself uh, out and guys like Daniels and Roberts and Patterson are, are fully healthy or close to it, this might be, you know, potentially the best offense we've seen from Air Force in, in quite some time. So uh, they are favored in 10 games in our numbers. I've seen some others out there who, who uh, say that in their projections, Air Force is a favorite in every game. Um, you know, we, we have them as a slight underdog in the finale on the road at San Diego State and then a, a home game uh, midseason against Boise State. Uh, that trip to Utah State will also be tough and we have them as about a half point favorite. But, you know, this could be a really, really special Air Force team, uh, if those injuries maybe aren't as big of a deal as as uh, sort of the current assumption is uh, among some, or the worry, I should say. Um, but even if guys like Roberts or Daniels are limited, you know, early in the year, Northern Iowa, Colorado, Wyoming, Nevada, maybe we're probably going to have Air Force, you know, certainly favored even without those guys, um, the first five games. So I, I feel like by that time and, and the comments said, Oh, maybe Roberts and Daniels won't be full speed until October. Well, by October, you know, that's when the schedule, uh, sort of ramps up a little bit and you've got Utah state, Boise state, and then later on, you know, army Colorado state, San Diego state. So this, this certainly could be a 10 win team again. Uh, it certainly, I think could be, a, um, you know, they've got a shot to go undefeated, basically. You know, this could be a power six contending team um, if if all works out. And it won't be easy. Utah State, Boise State, Army, San Diego State, those are certainly losable games. And, and we have seen Air Force on occasion trip up. And, you know, they lost to Utah State as a pretty big favorite early in the season last year. That looked like a shock at the time, certainly ended up, uh, turning out much more understandable as Utah State uh, was the, the conference champ. But we've seen Air Force lose games that it doesn't look like they should lose. Uh, 
So it's difficult for me to say that they're going to go through and, and certainly go 12 and 0, but they are a contender to do that. And every game on the schedule is winnable. So I think, you know, double digit wins is certainly a possibility. I think I would rather be on the over than the under at eight and a half. Um, but I guess, you know, if uh, I certainly don't want to hope that that guys are not going to be able to play or injured uh, more than, than we expect, but, you know, perhaps uh, if that comes to pass, then, then we'll be uh, maybe get lucky and, and be on the right side. But I, I think that this air force team is, is, Basically, the sky's the limit, I think. I think this is a team that we're probably going to see, you know, top 25 in the national rankings, another double-digit season, Mountain West contender, certainly, um, and, you know, potentially playing some pretty uh, big, uh, hopefully late night we'll get a chance to, to see some of these games uh, on, a, on a fairly big stage. So uh, I think Air Force is going to be a really, really interesting team and potentially, you know, uh, one of the better teams – uh, or at least, you know, from a one-loss standpoint, that we'll see in college football this year. Xavier, what are your thoughts on Air Force? It's obviously tough to uh, predict the military academies here, but Air Force yeah. has had uh, one of the better ones for a while. So, uh, you know, like Nick said, many the realm of possibilities is huge yeah. for this squad, but they look pretty solid. Yeah, and even though the the you know the possibilities are huge for this team, I think the they have been rather consistent enough for me to say that eight to nine wins should be their minimum. And that's why I'm going with the over. Um, I think that nine wins is this team's absolute minimum next year. Uh, now, whether or not they, that turns into them possibly winning their division or winning their conference will all come down to obviously, I think a couple of games, you know, that, that, you know, Nick alluded to at Utah state, uh, obviously Boise state right before the bye week uh, and, and I think that, you know, really at San Diego State at the end of the year, depending on how their defense is running, has an opportunity to just be a trap game, um, you know, if, if they're overlooking them a tad bit. But, yeah, I, I don't see why this Air Force team can't run the table. Um, I'm comfortable just saying that they're going to, you know, uh, go over their eight-and-a-half win projected win total uh, just because this is a team that's been rather consistent. They, they, they have been a model of consistency since the, since the pandemic year, since 2020. Um, even before that, they had a couple of down years, but – uh, since 2017, you know, they've only had two years where they didn't make a bowl game. Uh, so this is a this is a team that I absolutely expect to continue this level of consistency, this level of winning, um, and, and should do so. Uh, this is a team that for, for, a, for a service academy, they actually recruit pretty well. Uh, you know, they, they bring in a ton of three-star talent. I mean, a ton. Last This past year, they brought in 46 kids. Uh, so they bring in a ton of talent uh, when, when they do so. Um, and, and, you know, they are able to bring in a ton of three-star talent that ends up turning into the talent that they have now. And I think that they, you know, do a really good job of developing the kids um, and getting them in the system early. So, you know, we talk about this with Navy, we talk about this with Army, but I think Air Force does it maybe the best. Uh, maybe Navy does it to more of an extreme level uh, to where they have such, you know, highs and lows where they go, you know, 11 and one, then, you know, three and nine. But I think Air Force is able to give the, you know, develop their kids to an extent where it's more of a consistent stream of winning. Uh, with, with a certain class. Like I said, this class that got in in 2020 hasn't had a losing season yet. So I've got Air Force winning more than nine games. I think that they're able to do so. Their schedule, in my opinion, you know, lends itself to be really, really winnable. Um, you know, I, I think that they get they get some of their more difficult games at home. The only uh, road game that I think is going to be a trip up is, like Nick said, Utah State and maybe San Diego State at the end of the year. Other than that, they've got a lot of home games. The game against Boise State is at home as well. Uh, so I like them to win nine plus games and go over their win total. 
All right, we move on here to team number 65, Tulane. The Green Wave nearly upset Oklahoma in the opener. You guys know I was pulling for that. Uh, but they played several AEC title contenders tough, but injuries and an ineffective defense led to a surprising 2-10 and 10 final record. Uh, DK's got them for six wins, so, uh, you know, a big, big turnaround here. We have them at 7-5, and five, so we are over that six, Nick. And with Tulane, from both a ranking standpoint and projected record, it appears that we expect Tulane to be one of the most improved teams in the country. The big question is, can we count on the defense to improve enough to make that a reality? A lot like, you know, Vatek, we're looking at their offense. For Tulane, we're looking at their defense here. I, I think... I think so. I, you know, like everybody was, was really surprised that Tulane uh, lost 10 games. I mean, especially after week one where they, at times it looked like had Oklahoma on the ropes. Um, Michael Pratt is a uh, really, you know, solid uh, in some ways, prototypical fun group of five quarterback. Uh, He can run a little bit, can make plays. Uh, with his arm as well. Now he's entering his third season as a starter, 20 games uh, started under his belt, if healthy. And, and he did miss a little bit of time, um, get banged up, you know, running a, a, as much as he does some. Uh, and with an offensive line that ranked 93rd in, in O-line performance last year, uh, took some big hits. And, and uh, you know, we did get to see Kai Horton, Justin Abita a little bit uh, last year as well. But Pratt, I think, you know, has a, a pretty high ceiling um, as a just fun group of five quarterback. He's got some playmakers to work with. Their running game should be solid. Ty J. Spears, Cameron Carroll, both guys coming back. They added a Sean Clayton, who was a four-star uh, power five recruit. Uh, Igino Booker, somebody that, that, you know, Tulane is pretty creative offensively. Willie Fritz always has been. Um, and he's a guy, Booker, that, that they get involved sometimes. Uh, you know, in the slot as a receiver, as well as, um, you know, more of a traditional running back role. So it's going to be interesting to see how they can get multiple, uh, you know, two or three of those guys on the field at the same time. But also they've got a pretty, you know, pretty decent receiving core as well. Jaquan Jackson, uh, Shea Wyatt, Deuce Watts, Fat Watts, brought in a couple of transfers, Lawrence Keys, Daquan, uh, excuse me, Dewan McDougal, uh, and then, ta- you know, Tight ends. I mean, th- th- every position has got uh, some playmakers. Tyreek James, excuse me, Tyreek James is, is uh, potentially an all-conference type guy. Not the biggest target, only 6'2", but um, has been productive. And he and Will Wallace, pretty solid uh, one-two combo there at tight end. Even though that offensive line was a little bit of an issue last year, bringing back four full-time starters, added a uh, full-time starter uh, as a transfer, Princeton Pines, who... Uh, originally, I believe, committed to Oklahoma State um, as a transfer from Sam Houston, but uh, changed course and and ended up at Tulane. So offensively, you know, I I feel pretty good about Tulane. They also made one of the more intriguing uh, offensive coordinator hires of the offseason, brought in a a former uh, head coach at the lower levels, Division II level, I believe. Um, let's see here. Jim Savota was uh, the head coach at Division II Central Missouri uh, since 2010 and had been there you know, prior to that 
uh, you know, spent some time as the offensive coordinator at UCLA, but spent uh, far more time, you know, at the division two level as a head coach and put up some pretty huge numbers at times when I was going through building our, you know, stat projections uh, database. It's, it's pretty interesting to see, uh, you know, especially some of these wide receiver numbers, you know, as wide receiver one in 2021, 1400 yards, 10 touchdowns over 20 yards per catch. It's wide receiver one in 2019 because they didn't play in 2020, uh, who, by the way, was Shea Wyatt, who I mentioned being one of uh, Tulane's top wideouts, over 1400 yards, 22 yards per catch and 12 touchdowns. So, um, you know, interested to see what that unit looks like. They also were pretty balanced in 2019, had a thousand yard rusher um, and do, you know, uh, run the quarterback a little bit, not huge uh, rushing numbers, about a hundred attempts overall, about 80 uh, looks like design runs, but, you know, curious to see what that looks like, what that does to Michael Pratt. Will they be able to keep him a little healthier, but also um, are they going to be able with Savota who's been a, a, you know, at least the head coach and, and um, certainly offensive minded for a pretty consistently explosive passing offense at, at central Missouri, but also, you know, showed some promise in, in the running game as well. Curious to see how that translates. Curious to see what this pretty experienced unit ranks third in offensive returning production. Um, you know, how big of a step forward will they be able to take offensively because they fell down to 85th in offensive team performance last year. 103rd passing. So uh, I expect this to be a better passing team. Certainly I expect it to be a overall, you know, better offense, but you ask about the defense, you know, it's a little more, little more of a concern because they, uh, you know, lost a a handful of uh, experienced and and talented, productive players to, uh, you know, the end of their eligibility, especially in the back seven. And then, you know, a guy like Jojo Dorcius who came in, had a a big time impact as a, as a transfer up front or off the edge last year uh, is also part of that group out of eligibility, but then they lost perhaps their best defensive player, Jeffrey Johnson um, nose tackle transferred to Oklahoma. So uh, that was a big blow. How are they going to be able to replace those guys? The linebacker core is in really, really good hands with Dorian Williams and Nick Anderson, but you know, the secondary making, uh, making Clark, Solid at safety has been productive, started 20 games, but there's a lot of unknowns there. You know, brought in a couple of guys as transfers who are probably going to have to start. Jarius Monroe from the FCS level at Nichols. Uh, also, Lummy Young, who's a multi-year starter at Duke. Um, so, you know, perhaps that unit will be pretty solid. It looks okay on paper. Um, but up front, you know, Eric Hicks is a returning starter. Angelo Anderson's played a lot the last couple of years. Darius Hodges, though he wasn't a starter, uh, was highly productive, had a great year last year. But, you know, that that unit as well, that group has, has lost quite a bit. So I'm, I'm uh, a little worried about the defense. I, I feel like Tulane might end up having to win uh, quite a few shootouts. And when you're going up against a team like Kansas State, as they are in the non-conference in, in week three, Houston in that uh, AAC opener. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily feel great about that. Going on the road to beat Cincinnati in the regular season finale, 
you know, that that's probably not uh, necessarily a, a great matchup. So it's not that I was expecting Tulane to, to go from 10 losses to 10 wins, but kind of getting excited about the offense, what they've got coming back as well as kind of the creative, uh, you know, juices that we see often from Willie Fritz, but also some new blood in there as well by bringing in Savota, you know, this certainly could be a team, I think, that makes things really interesting uh, in conference play, but not probably, you know, and, and pretty unrealistic, I guess, to, to expect it would be anyway, but, you know, probably not going to be able to make that big, big jump um, into scaring the teams like Houston, Cincinnati, even maybe SMU, UCF, um, though, you know, this team is consistently a tough out as we saw last year with Oklahoma as, as teams like UCF have, have seen in the past. So, uh, I'm a little bit torn on what the ultimate ceiling is, but I do think that Tulane is definitely going to be much improved, uh, and feel pretty good about, um, our projection, you know, for, for them to get over that six wins back to ball eligibility winning season and, and, uh, you know, perhaps maybe a little bit more if this really is one of the most improved teams uh, in the country. Xavier, what are your thoughts on, on Tulane? Because like we said, very big underperformers last season. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they're going to make a big step, probably more to closer to where they should have been last season, at least. But like Nick said, there's meat on the bone for a little bit more than just a 500 improvement here, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I will say this, as much as improved as I think they will be this year, I, I still look at their schedule as so daunting. You know, I I think that when you look at the AAC, I think it's just a better conference than you know what, what maybe you know some people who you know maybe don't college football, don't follow college football will think it is. And when you look at the fact that they have to go to Houston, and then their last four games they have to go see you know at Tulsa, UCF, SMU, at Cincinnati, just feels just ridiculous for a team that even though they may be majorly improved, is still going to struggle because they're just playing better teams. Like, that just might be what it is, right? Uh, you know, and that's not to mention that before they play Tulsa, after a bye week, uh, you know, before that, they play Memphis at home. So, you know, this is not going to be an easy ride at all for them. This is going to be a team that has to start off pretty well uh, for them to have any success to this year. Um, and if they don't, you know, roll with the punches, they're going to struggle. That's just what the, what's going to happen now. I don't think they'll be anywhere near two loss, you know, two wins struggling uh, this year, but I would not be surprised if this team just misses out on, 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 a, on a bowl win, on, on a bowl t- uh, game, excuse me. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to go with the over, but I would not be surprised if this team, you know, you know, due to, you know, just the competition within the conference and, you know, they're not, them not finding their footing necessarily as quickly as we may thought, may, may think, excuse me, not, you know, making a bowl game, just being five and seven, having to beat Cincinnati at the end of the year to possibly get that, get it, get them into a bowl game. I uh, just feels a little bit too much of a struggle for them. Now, what I will say is they clearly see that they, you know, Nick, you, you hit it on that. They, they clearly see that they need help uh, bringing in eight transfers. Uh, this is a team who, you know, finished it with a top 75 transfer rating, a top 75 class uh, as a whole, if you go by a 247's composite rating. So a team that's definitely on the upward swing, and definitely realizes some of the help that they need. Uh, you know, you know, like you mentioned, they got not one but two safeties from uh, two safeties uh, on the back end. Uh, not only that, they brought in a ton of uh, outside talent from Maryland and Notre Dame, respectively. Uh, so I, I really like what they're doing at Tulane. I just 
don't know if I'm ready to put them above an SMU or above a Houston, which is where I think they would have to be for them to have a year, you know, that maybe Nick is alluding to where, you know, they're, they, they could possibly make a genuine run at this. And I'm until I see it, I'm not comfortable enough, you know, saying it. All right, let's move along here to uh, Georgia State at 64. And GSU made a QB change and overcame a one and four start to win seven of their last eight, including their only loss being in the Sun Belt Championship to Louisiana 21 17. And they beat Ball State 51 to 20 in the Camellia Bowl uh, to finish at eight and five. Seven and a half is their win total. We have them at seven and five. So we are slightly under this seven and a half. But Nick, uh, despite our projection favoring the under here, it looks like Georgia State has a path to the Sun Belt Championship game. What would be the biggest hurdle between the Panthers uh, making a historic season here? Uh, specifically, I think the biggest hurdle is uh, a Wednesday night game. So, you know, a lot of eyes, I'm sure, on probably ESPN. Uh trip to Boone, North Carolina to play Appalachian State. Um, so they do get a little bit of extra prep time after the in-state rivalry with Georgia Southern on October 8th. Uh, but, you know, App State has, has basically um, been the certainly in the Eastern Division, you know, the, the team to beat every year uh, in recent memory. But, you know, that's a, that's a pretty tough matchup if you're going to try to make a run and sort of knock off one of the heavyweights in not just the division, but the conference as a whole. So I do like that they get Coastal Carolina, one at home, but also early in the season um, as the Sun Belt opener. And Coastal Carolina is, you know, we will discuss, I'm sure, a little bit later um, in future episodes, uh, replacing a lot. And, and so, you know, getting them early uh, is certainly better. Georgia State could get a huge uh, boost in terms of confidence if they're able to knock off uh, South Carolina or North Carolina, both of which are, though we do have Georgia State as an underdog in both games, both games are also, uh, you know, within a touchdown in our projected point spread. So we've seen Georgia State, you know, knock off teams uh early in the year obviously the, the win against tennessee a few years ago being sort of the uh the big one but they're gonna have a uh you know gonna have opportunities to make some noise early in the year uh in some winnable games coastal carolina being you know one of america's teams in, in the last couple of years south carolina and north carolina consistent bowl teams uh power five programs those are certainly winnable games so you know they they i think can build a lot of um whether you actually believe in momentum or, or not uh they can build a little bit of momentum in the first half of the year and go into that that uh game against app state with a lot of confidence and, and believing that they, um, you know, can and, and maybe should win that game. Um, but that is certainly going to be the toughest and probably second, you know, second toughest is uh, a road trip to Marshall in the regular season finale, who's also going to be one of the higher rated teams in the division in, as we've talked about before, the tougher of the two divisions, at least the way it looks right now in the Sun Belt. So, um, you know, schedule wise, probably don't necessarily want to play the arguably top two teams in your division on the road. 
But both of those games, I think, are winnable in part because, you know, Georgia State really figured it out and after a, a slow start. And sadly, because I was a I was a quad brown fan, I uh, thought that he was in line for a really, really great year. But, you know, just just didn't quite work out. Uh, and when they made the move to Darren Granger, offense kind of kind of took off. Uh, Tucker Gregg, pretty solid uh, running back James Williams is a you know a little bit more electric uh, potential playmaker, and they make a pretty good you know one-two combo. The wide receiver core lost a talented one in Sam Pinkney, but guys like Jamari Thrash, Jaseus Craigle, Terrence Dixon, they were able to get tight end Aubrey Payne back for at least a seventh year. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you know that that was a pretty big uh addition there the offensive line lost probably their their best single offensive lineman in Shamarius Gilmore but the other four uh experienced starters return Jonathan Bass the you know right tackle started 23 games he is by far the least experienced of the three Travis Glover has 36 career starts Malik Sumner 41 Pat Bartlett 42 so um, a unit that played really, really well, top 40 in offensive line performance last year and is, you know, one of the most experienced, uh, certainly in the Sun Belt. And, and they're going to be uh, pretty high in the national rankings as well. 140 career starts among uh, that group. So uh, defensively, you know, the back end is uh, probably the best um, unit. They are a top 50 uh, secondary, according to our Position strength ratings, top two in the Sun Belt. Two guys were either first or second team all Sun Belt last year uh, or in recent memory, Quavon White and Atavius Lane. So, you know, pretty solid one-two punch to build around. The linebacker core also, you know, really experienced, has some talented players um, deep as well. You know, Jamil Muhammad, we don't have him even listed as a starter, uh, put up eight production points last year. Converted quarterback, former Vanderbilt signee. Uh, and, you know, he probably will play a lot, might actually end up with a, um, you know, starting spot. But when you bring back Blake Carroll and Jordan uh, Venezuela and, and Ja'Cory Crawford, John Jay Hunter, you know, pretty solid group there as well. The defensive line, you know, Thomas Gore, one of the most productive interior defensive linemen uh, in college football, basically. And, you know, it, it just overall, there's not a real weak spot. There's not necessarily a superstar at any position, um, but Georgia State is just a solid roster, an experienced roster at just about every position. I mean, they're 10th in offensive line, or excuse me, 10th in offensive returning production, 4th in defensive returning production, 4th overall. You know, if it weren't for a couple of, of potentially poorly placed uh, road trips. I, I think we might be talking about Georgia State as one of the favorites, and, and maybe they still should be. I mean, this is a team that can win a lot of games, and though uh, kind of similar to our Air Force discussion, you know, I've been talking for weeks. Man, I wish we were on the under on more of these teams. And a couple of the unders today, I, I kind of wish we were on the other side because I think Georgia State does have, you know, eight, nine, maybe even ten win potential. Uh, if all goes well, because there's there's really a lot to like about this team. There's no automatic loss on the schedule, even with a couple of Power Five opponents. Um, so this 
you know, Georgia State team could be a really, really fun one to watch. Now for a completely non-biased look at Georgia State is our very own Xavier Tris. Xavier, take it away. <laughs> That's not fair. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> that, I just want to let everybody know what they're uh, you know, running into <laughs> here. In That's the all. corner over here. Uh, just, right. just to answer your question, the diploma is sitting right next to me. Uh, but no, yeah. uh, I think we're to be completely unbiased. This, this team goes as far as Darren Granger's arm can take them. Um, this team, as good as it has been, I think a lot of people will, will, will suggest that they figured out the blueprint on this roster. If you can stop the run game, you can stop Georgia State. And I think, you know, where where, we, where Georgia State did struggle last year is when they got down. Um, and that's what ended up having the change in the offensive system last year in Quad Brown. Nick, we were all fans of Quad coming into the year. Um, but, you know, he just, offensively, you just thought, you know, what would be a little bit more explosive just wasn't there. Um, and, you know, Darren Granger comes in and the offense, for all intents and purposes, like I said, just kind of took a, a, a step in explosion. You know, we, we had, you know, two, you know, you know that coming into the year, you've got two, uh, gosh, just lost it. You've got two Dope Walker, uh, sim, you know, award watch list, find, uh, watch list guys in Jemias Williams and Tucker Gregg. I mean, you've just got a team that is going to be based a lot on the run game. We know that. But if Darren Granger can figure out a way to just hit the big plays, and I think that that was something that he struggled a lot with last year. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons as to why I feel like, you know, uh, you know the receiving core has had the shakeup that it had because people didn't get nearly the touches that they were, you know, that they were accustomed to under Quad Brown. Um, you know, the offense became a lot more run and shoot. And I, and I think that when you look at, this next year, if Darren Granger can take that next step as a thrower, where he can make some more of the intermediate throws on third down, and we're not, you know, forcing him to, you know, you're not sitting there saying, okay, all you got to do is hit the big one um, every every drive. This team is going to have an opportunity to win the Sun Belt this year. Um, you know, obviously, App State's been our bogey team uh, their our entire time in the Sun Belt, and I don't think that necessarily changes. Uh, but you do get a bye week before them this year. You do, you do, you know, do that after a very emotional game, which the Georgia Southern game is always emotional, no matter how good or bad either team is. Uh, so you get an opportunity to kind of reset, which is going to be great for the guys. Um, and, you know, if they can get past App State, this, you know, I hate saying the sky's the limit, but it really is. Uh, I've already have a bet on them to beat North Carolina this year uh, at home. So that's 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 already set in stone. Uh, I already I had a bet looming before the Spencer Rattler transfer to South Carolina. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think this is a team that genuinely can can have its first double-digit win season, uh, can bust 10, you know, 10 to 11 wins out, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to do so. Uh, I, I, I think the other piece that I, I'll add is that this team has to, has to figure out a way to cover consistently. There were games last year where they were great in coverage. And then there were games against North Carolina. You could cover the spread. Like, yeah, that would be great. Well, yeah, no, no, no. no, no. I'm talking about no, the No, he's talking about his former, <laughs> yeah, his former yeah. position. Right. Yeah, the one yeah. that he watches the most. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, it gets you know, the most judgment from him. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Tavius Lane and Co. are going to have a big, you know, a, a lot. You know, Nick, you know, you named the, the defensive front. You named how good that linebacker room is, which probably, which might be the best linebacker room outside of Troy in the Sun Belt. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, going into this year. So, those DBs are going to have a ton of attention on them. And it's a bunch of older guys. So this isn't a lot of youth. But you know what I've said on this podcast a thousand times. And it may apply to them in the middle of the year if Georgia State hasn't hit the heights that you expect them to hit this year. It'll be, uh, you know, not solely the blame on the back end. But if they're losing games due to shootouts, 
you're going to hear me say old garbage just stinks worse. Yeah, uh, that, that is something that Xavier has said. Didn't expect him to say it uh, in uh, this context about Georgia State, but I, I am surprised. So actually, for though? real yeah. unbiased opinion yeah, from absolutely. Uh, Xavier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for their win total, seven and a half, I'm going over. This is a team that last year was able to go seven and a half after an abysmal start to the year in one and four. I mean, I think, and I think the East is easier this year than it was last season. Um, I, I think this year... Coastal isn't nearly the the the, the uh, dominant force it was last year, and they beat Coastal. Um, so I, you know, and I will say that those last two games again at James Madison and at Marshall is going to be weird. That's going to be the first time they're going to see either team. Uh, Marshall and JMU both have had decent football. Marshall has had good football history. JMU has had decent football history. So I'm I'm excited to see how they perform in those two games. Uh, going on the road uh, to those two places, going up to Virginia, up to and, and to West Virginia in the year as well. All right, let's move on. Speaking of West Virginia, that is who we're talking about here. Number sixty-three, West Virginia. The Mountaineers navigated peaks and valleys. I said it, Nick, again. Uh, so that's an extra five dollars for me. Uh, it, it last season, but wins over Iowa State and Texas were offset by losses to Maryland, OU, and Texas Tech, and they had a disappointing eighteen to six showing in their bowl game versus Minnesota. Five and a half is their total from DK. We have them at six and six, so slightly over that five and a half. Uh, Nick, West Virginia last year, everybody knows that they struggled offensively, especially running the football. They have turned to new OC Graham Harrell and former five-star QB JT Daniels for a boost, if he can ever get on the field. How should we, how much change should we expect? Is this going to actually pay off for the Mountaineers this year, Nick? I I think, you know, I talked about I don't have a great read on Boston College, don't have a great read on Virginia Tech. I think I'm in an even worse position with West Virginia um, because, you know, Graham Harrell has had some success in the past, but those USC offenses weren't quite as good as, um, you know, everybody kind of expected they would be. Uh, under his direction, the running game at times, you know, was a major, major issue for USC. That's been, even with Letty Brown the last few years, uh, a real struggle for West Virginia to consistently run the football. So, you know, offensive line wise, I think West Virginia is in great shape. Um, a unit that performed at a top 50 level in our O-line performance ratings, all five starters coming back including Zach Frazier at center, who is an all-conference caliber player, Doug Nestor, who is a 100-rated player, um, really highly rated recruit, transferred from uh, Virginia Tech. Um, it's, a, it's a solid unit, and, you know, you think it's, it's probably going to be a, a pretty good uh, one to build around offensively. Tony Mathis Jr. had a pretty good bowl game when he was able to, to get out and, and uh, take – uh, the majority of the carries and, you know, he was apparently able to, to beat Lynn J. Dixon who transferred from Clemson to, to West Virginia and went through spring practice uh, was able to, you know, uh, establish himself enough, I guess that Dixon ended up transferring out and, and is now at Tennessee kind of competing for a, uh, seems like a backup role maybe. So um, interesting scenario there, but you know, what will this offense look like? Are they going to ask Mathis to, you know, carry a pretty heavy workload? He, Justin Johnson, Jalen Anderson, there's some talent there. It's it's 
pretty unproven, but but those other two guys uh, were really highly rated recruits, you know, four-star or fringe four-star um, guys coming out of high school, but, you know, with Letty Brown back there, just haven't been asked to do very much. Uh, but of course, Graham Hill is, you know, an air raid guy, puts the ball in the air quite a bit. In theory, JT Daniels should perform quite well. You know, it, it, it seems like they're doing like a three-way split uh, with the ones for uh, quarterback reps in the early days of spring camp. But, uh, you know, seems like JT Daniels is 98% likely to, to be the week one starter. But I've kind of soured on him a little bit over the last couple of years where he just wasn't able to either stay healthy or beat out uh, Stetson Bennett. And, you know, I wonder a little bit uh, he actually did get the sort of dreaded downgrade in, in our uh, talent projection ratings based on his you know 247 rating coming out of high school. He's He's been productive at times, had a good true freshman year at USC, uh, really flashed in the second half of the 2020 season at Georgia, but it's just not necessarily somebody I, I trust. So at this point, you know, I think he's got a lot of potential and, you know, maybe he's the key to unlocking a, a West Virginia offense that seemingly has a lot of potential with guys like Bryce Fort Wheaton, uh, who has been productive, Sam James, you know, last year took a little bit of a step back from a production standpoint, but earlier in his career, uh, had a really strong start hearing a lot of good things about Caden Prather, maybe taking that next step. Um, that top three in the receiving core, I think has a chance to, to bring up, really solid trio Michael Laughlin, if he's uh, you know, healthy at tight end and, and they brought in uh, Brian Poledny, an interesting name. Admittedly, I don't know a whole lot about, um, but DiCarlo Donaldson, I, I saw a little blurb, uh, 6'2", 215 pound tight end recruit apparently is working at running back and, and might be a little bit of a uh, kind of a unique weapon. So maybe a name to file away for the future, but um you know, that tight end position, they've recruited really well in recent years. So it's, it certainly has potential. Um, you know, not sure, not, not quite sure if I'm ready to buy in to Graham Harrell and JT Daniels, you know, really being able to take this offense to the next step. Um, you know, I feel like the, the offensive line and, and, uh, you know, I do like Mathis, I kind of, I kind of want to see what the running game would look like, but I just don't know that that's the direction they're, you know, if they're really going to be able to, to, uh, or if they're going to be willing to, um, go down that path. I don't know. It, it's, it's. I, I'm a little bit torn because you know, obviously, passing is is proven to be uh, more efficient. And they do, they are set up a little bit better um, on paper in the passing game, but I don't know. There, there's something about it for, for one reason. Maybe it's just because they've been as disappointing as they have been with a talented running back and Letty Brown running the football that I kind of want to see some improvement there. I don't know. Uh, but defensively, you know, should be a, a pretty solid unit. They did lose uh, a high number of impact players, starters on the defensive side of the ball to the transfer portal. They lost three starters on offense as well to the transfer portal. Uh, Jared Deggie's at uh, Western Kentucky now after starting the last couple of years at quarterback, Sean Ryan and Winston Wright Jr. transferred to Rutgers and Florida State respectively. But defense, they were they were really hit hard up front. Maybe 
you know, their best player, certainly uh, a, a really uh, productive defensive lineman, Akeem Mesidor, is headed to Miami. Um, you know, edge rusher Vendarius Cowan, who's flashed at times, is now at Maryland. A, another productive linebacker, consistent Josh Chandler Semedo, is at Colorado now. And then three starting corners um, are in different places. Jackie Matthews transferred to Mississippi State. Daryl Porter is also at Miami with Mesidor. And uh, Nick Troy Fortune uh, kind of popped up somewhat unexpectedly on the roster at UTSA this past week. So that's uh, just a lot of guys to replace. And, and they also suffered, you know, one of those um, injuries, kind of a, a little bit of a different scenario. St. McLeod apparently uh, has a, uh, was involved in a stabbing and is not currently with the team, not able to, to play, but was penciled in as a, you know, starting safety uh, most likely in, in our team profiles in a, uh, an area of the roster that, as I mentioned, the, the number of starters that opted to play elsewhere really couldn't afford uh, to lose one of your more experienced players. But that secondary is just really, really um, a lot of unknowns. They brought in Rashad Ajay, who was a starter at Colorado State, to maybe lock down one of those corner spots. Uh, Wesley McCormick, also a transfer has a, a shot to, to play. He was a, a starter at times at James Madison. Um, and then Charles Woods has, you know, a good bit of experience. Um, another former, you know, transfer from a, a lower level, but uh, the safety position is just completely unknown. So, you know, what is that going to look like? Um, up front, Dante Stills is back. He's an all-conference caliber player. Taj Austin has, you know, been solid in his career. So defensive line play, probably you know has a chance to to be decent um but there's just a lot of new faces a lot of incoming transfers a lot of outgoing transfers that defensively um it's a little hard to know what to expect it's been the more solid of of the two units certainly and when west virginia has been good it's been with you know a a good defense uh, especially a few years ago when they were one of the best in the country but you know, with a, a quarterback and offensive coordinator uh, situation that sounds good, but I don't necessarily trust either of them. And a defense that, you know, it's hard for me to look at all the new faces, especially in the back seven, and, you know, err on the side of, uh, or, or, you know, lean to uh, saying, oh, they're, they're going to be fine because they've been a pretty good unit in the past, you know. There's, there's not a whole lot of evidence, uh, at least as far as guys I've seen play in a West Virginia uniform defensively to suggest um, that this unit's going to be, you know, top half of the Big 12. I don't know. It certainly could be. But I, I, I think it's far from a, um, you know, settled question. And West Virginia is going to be in a lot of close games, it seems. Uh, you know, Pitt and Kansas – both of those are winnable games. That pit game, you know, college game day is going to be there. Uh, backyard brawl, renewed rivalry. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. They also play Virginia Tech on the road, another renewed rivalry. Um, but, you know, every Big 12 game, basically after the, the bye week at least, is projected as a one-score game. They are uh, no more or no less than an eight-point uh favorite or underdog in any of those games back half of the year. So 
Uh, will West Virginia, you know, win those close games? Um, hard to say. They've, they've been kind of an up and down, as you mentioned, peaks and valleys. They, they've kind of been that sort of team the last few years, and they've ended up right around 500, and, and our projection is right there. 5.55 projected wins rounds up to six, but I kind of, uh, you know, I, I kind of think that there's a chance, especially if the offense doesn't work out, um, is, is kind of on the, the high end of the, the hopes uh, that, that this could be a team sitting with a losing record at the end of the year. So I don't necessarily like that. I, I certainly think there are reasons to be optimistic about West Virginia. Um, but I think that there are a lot of you know, potential red flags, a lot of areas of concern, questions that I have, and just don't necessarily trust that we're going to get answers that are going to, you know, make this a, a, uh, a, a certain bowl team or a uh, contender in the Big 12. They certainly could be, you know, give a lot of teams problems. Um, and the travel, teams that have to travel to West Virginia, that's, that's an advantage for them. Um, but I just week in and week out, it's right now a difficult team for me to trust. So I'm, I'm kind of glad we're on the under, uh, or no, we're technically on the over because we're 5.55. I wish we were <laughs> a little on the under for West Virginia. So this is another one that, that kind of my own personal opinion, uh, I trust the numbers, but, but kind of differ a little bit, kind of wish we were on the other side because yeah, this team certainly could get back to a bowl game. Um, going to be in a lot of close games, a lot of coin flips. But I, I think if I had to personally uh, try to guarantee one side or the other, I kind of wish we would be on the under on this one. Xavier, I mean, you know, I think West Virginia is the epitome of this group of teams, right? Yes. We're dead in the <laughs> middle. Uh, you know, there is a lot of talent on this roster, but the QB and the run game seem to really hold them up last season. What do you think of West Virginia? I mean, can Daniels actually get on the field and play? We've been waiting for him to do it for like three years now. Yeah, I think he will. And I think he'll be successful. You know, this is a guy that, yes, before his weird, wacky injury at Georgia, I think was just setting, you know, Georgia fans alight, you know, and and really doing an amazing job at the university. I I, I feel this is a year, and, and even though this guy I think had a little bit more uh, experience under his belt when he made this move, but this feels very reminiscent of when Will Breer went there. They didn't go up there and tear and tear it up, you know. In his two years there, they went eight and four and seven and five. Um, I think that's very indicative of what you know West Virginia at its best can expect from JT Daniels if he does play up to his ability. Um, if he doesn't, obviously I agree with Nick. I think this is a team that will be you know uh, will give maybe one or two teams a headache, but more than likely will just be a turnstile um, in in people's hopes to possibly win the Big Twelve. Uh, but if JT Daniels can play football how we've seen him do it at certain levels, I think this is a team that can absolutely win seven, eight games. Um, and, you know, at that point, yes, I'm, I'm on the over. But I think that I should be on the over if JT Daniels plays quarterback like we've seen him do it in certain, in certain uh, in times of his career. Uh, so I, I like West Virginia for that reason. Yes, I know I am. I'm, I'm probably higher than most on what JT Daniels will and won't do on a football field at this point in his career, um, just because of what I was able to see at Georgia and, and you know, um, what I thought was a pretty freakish injury that sidelined him before Stetson Bennett. Um, and since Stetson Bennett got to rock and, you know, the rest is history. Um, at, at this point, I think when you look at their schedule as well, it's Pitt, Kansas, 
Towson. And we just talked about a, a Virginia Tech team that we don't believe has a semblance of or will be, you know, hindered on whether or not they have a semblance of offense. I think when you look at it that way, you go, okay, cool. This is a team that can start off three and one, four, you know, four and no, possibly. Obviously, they can also very well start off two and two. But should start off with some confidence uh, before heading to Texas and then getting their first and then getting their bye week of the season. And then at that point, I think the schedule isn't like ridiculously daunting after their bye week. They play Baylor away, and they, or excuse me, they play Baylor at home. Then they have Texas Tech, uh, TCU, and Iowa State, all of which I think are winnable games for them. Uh, before they go and play Oklahoma, Kansas State, and Oklahoma State, all of, all of which I feel are, are possibly losing games, except for maybe uh, Kansas State, depending on what they look at, at look like at that point in the year. So I, I think for West Virginia, if they manage it well, and if JT Daniels can go with the ebbs and flow that are naturally going to be there, you know, playing for West Virginia, you know, you're going from USC and Georgia to West Virginia, there's going to be somewhat of a talent drop off at this point. Um, if he can go with the ebbs and flow and, and manage it well, this is a team that should go seven and five. Is a team that should at least compete to go eight and four. Uh, so with that being the case, I'm, I'm going to go with their over. They, they should make a bowl game this year, and, and there should be no question in my mind. As long as JT Daniels doesn't, you know, completely wet the bed, this is a team that's a bowl team. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 yes, maybe I'm a little bit more bullish than those than most, but I'm going to, you know, I, I don't. In this case, I, I don't care about being out on the limb on West on a West Virginia and more importantly, JT Daniels' ability to play quarterback. All right, let's go over to number sixty-two UAB. And though UAB fell short in the Conference USA title defense, the Blazers continued head coach Bill uh, Clark's remarkable rebirth with a 9-4 and record capped by a 31-28 upset of overranked BYU in the Independence Bowl. Eight and a half is their DK win total. Uh, we have them at seven and five, so we are well under that eight and a half. A big part of that is because Clark unexpectedly retired this summer for health reasons and handed the reins over to offensive coordinator Brian Bryant Vincent. And the question is here, Nick, will the Blazers be able to continue their consistent run of success without the highly respected Clark in charge? I'm a little torn on the answer because it, you know, we've seen uh, scenarios where, you know, coaches step aside, retire, have, of uh, health issues, what have you. Uh, and we've seen it, you know, sometimes kind of late in the process. This was after spring practice, I believe, that, that Bill Clark announced he was going to step down and then the official, uh, you know, move away, I believe, was was uh, the 1st of August. But there there should be some, um, you know, consistency, just sort of promoting from within. Uh, it's set up in a way, sounded like, you know, this was Clark's right-hand man, sort of the uh, the heir apparent. Regardless, uh, somebody would have you know wanted to, to hand the program over to if something like this were to happen. So there should be some consistency. It shouldn't be like a you know brand new uh, head coach coming in. So in some ways, I, I think okay, yeah, it's it's probably going to be fine. The culture is established there. Routines, I'm sure, are established. Vincent's not going to uh, change everything up too much. Um, did bring in Darren Henshaw to, to sort of replace him as offensive coordinator. I'm not sure quite yet if if he's uh, going to actually hand over play calling duties to Henshaw. I, right now, we kind of in our ratings treat it as as if Vincent's still the uh, offensive coordinator. But um, you know, losing Clark specifically, who was 
among the the most respected head coaches uh, in college football from other coaches, but also from media and, and just sort of the job he did to resurrect this you know UAB program uh, literally from the dead. I mean, you know, didn't play for two years uh, because of, of the, the program being shut down and then building it back into, you know, arguably the most consistent program in Conference USA. And they'll be moving up to uh, or moving on, I guess, up maybe uh, to the AAC next year. But I, I have to think there's going to be a little bit of a, an impact just not having Bill Clark um, and, you know, getting a guy who's, again, another first time first year head coach, even though he was on staff before, even though all the players know him well. And, and I'm sure he's going to keep a lot of things the same and also, you know, has some really good players to work with guys like Dwayne McBride, uh, who should be the best running back in conference USA, one of the, uh, you know, somebody who I think has, has an NFL future, I mean, 215 pounds, um, has been productive, has been explosive. And then defensively, you know, UAB has consistently uh, been really, really good defensively. They took a, a little bit of a step back last year um, to 25th in defensive team performance. They were top uh, 16 the, the previous three years. So, you know, guys like Noah Wilder coming back, uh, who is all conference, Grayson Cash, all conference, uh, multiple starters in the secondary, multiple starters, uh, or guys who play a lot at linebacker and on the edge, have some rebuilding to do up front. But, but you know, that unit was a top 20 uh, unit in, in D-line performance last year, and they've certainly got a lot of size, uh, three 300-pounders plus in our current projected uh, D-line depth chart. So, I mean, there's there's – a lot to like. There's a lot to say, okay, yeah, this UAB team, even losing one of the better coaches in college football and sort of the, you know, put his name on the stadium type guy at, at UAB, um, there's there's still a part of me that says, you know, that that is going to have an impact. Um, so we'll see, you know, we, we did change over the head coach rating, gave, uh, UAB and, and, uh, Vincent a generic 75 rating that's uh, tied for 119th with a lot of the other first year head coaches. Uh, so that's, that's a bit of a drop off, you know, 10, 10 or more points, uh, from what Clark's was, who was a top 30, uh, in our head coaching ratings, which is really, really high among G5, uh, head coaches. Um, but. We'll see. What will it have a major impact? Will UAB still in the uh, still be in the conference title uh, race? I think they probably will. I don't necessarily expect them to win as many of the coin flips with a first time head coach without Clark. Uh, games where they are a slight underdog, like at Western Kentucky, at FAU, really talented team who you know schematically, you know, if Bill Clark was there, probably would give. Uh, UAB the edge to to figure out a way to win, but with some turnover there, you know, not so sure. Uh, home game against UTSA, the defending champ, that's certainly going to be uh, a tough game, but a winnable game, but kind of give UTSA the edge there. Uh, at least our projections certainly do. And they're going to have some uh, close calls, close uh, projected uh, games against teams like North Texas, even Louisiana Tech, who does have a first-year head coach, but that game's on the road, and, you know, Louisiana Tech, pretty talented roster. 
uh, for Conference USA. So there are a lot of winnable games. It, it certainly would not shock me if uh, the program is sort of in a you know well-oiled machine type situation enough to where they can just keep you know staying consistent eight nine type wins um but this is one one of the few so far uh that i've i've actually been happy to see that we're on the under and this is our biggest um edge uh, as far as the numbers go biggest difference in in our projection and the odds makers uh, and we were under even with bill clark um it's just that uab has been one of those teams that kind of plays above its talent level um and the way we project it you know uh, we sometimes miss teams like that but uh we are on the under and i actually you know for once feel a little bit confident in it um i think uab will be a good solid team and play a lot of close games but because of the you know coaching turnover um i think there's a chance they come out on the wrong side of those more often than not Xavier, your thoughts on uab do you think um you know, they're going to put together another impressive season, or do you think the luck may wear, be wearing thin here with a new head coach? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, when you, when you look at, yes, they have a new coach, but like Nick said, and, and this is major, that they kind of got the guy that they were already looking at to be the heir apparent. You know, the, the, the system doesn't change. The philosophies don't change. The way you practice, all of that good stuff doesn't even change. You know, even the way that you pick captains, like none of that's changing. And so I feel like, you know, what they the system that they built there still works in that way. And so they should still be rather competitive. You know, you look at the schedule and I'm sorry, I, I just don't see where they end up with more than, you know, three losses. Right. Maybe they're all at the end of the year. Right. Maybe they lose to UTSA, LSU and, and Louisiana Tech all as a, you know, all at the end of the year. But I, I think when you look at their schedule, they should win the first four, four games. Pretty, you know, pretty, I'll say pretty easily, but they should definitely win their first four games. Uh, they, should, they should win their first six games, in my personal, in my personal opinion. Uh, but I don't want to go too far out there on the limb. Uh, you know, when you look at Alabama AM, Liberty, Georgia Southern, Rice, Middle Tennessee, and Charlotte, you know, Charlotte's really the biggest test there for me. Uh, I think that they should be able to handle their business right there. And then you get into the meat of their schedule, which is their last six games. And I think in that, in that six games, they should handle business. Uh, against North Texas, they should probably handle business against Louisiana Tech, and then yeah, eight and four. That, that's perfectly fine by me. I, I, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say they're going to be exactly the same as they were last year. Uh, so you know, with an eight and four record, they'd be under, and, I, and I'm comfortable saying that, and I'm comfortable leaning on that fact that I do think that they may take a you know slight regression and a legitimate slight regression, uh, you know, at eight and four, which is perfectly fine by me. Um, you know, to say that, and, and I don't know, and, you know, Nick alluded to the fact that they were, under, he, the numbers were under them, even with Bill Clark. I, I don't see the coaching change having that much of an effect. Uh, now, yes, his name will probably be on the side of that stadium at some point, right? Uh, but I, I think when you bring in a guy that the entire locker room kind of knows, is familiar with, um, and, and probably still looks at, like, you know, you know, at least the assistant head coach, and you're pretty much fine with the, with the guys in the locker room, and, and it should still run pretty smoothly uh, at that point. So eight and four is what I think they'll go with. Um, that's still, that'll be under their eight and five, eight and five projected uh, or eight and a half, excuse me, projected win total. Uh, but I, I just feel comfortable saying that this team's not going to have this you know significant drop off just because they lost their head coach. All right, let's go up to the last squad for today's show. Sitting at number sixty-one, Maryland. Maryland opened four and zero last season. 
but lost six of its next seven games needed a regular season finale win over Rutgers to qualify for a bowl game. But they did capitalize on that, winning a 54 to 10 match over Virginia Tech, finished seven and six. Six games is their projected DK total. We have them at six and six, but we are rounding up to that six win, 5.8 projected. So we are officially under the six line. The question here, Nick, the Terps were explosive at times last season and ranked 15th in returning offensive production. Will the defense, which ranked 91st in production and 73rd in returning production, be good enough to get Maryland back to a bowl game this year? I'm I'm not so sure. Um, Maryland, you know, you mentioned it, it defensively been a little bit of an issue. They ranked 91st in defensive team performance last year, 112th against the pass. I mean, uh, Maryland was was put in a situation where, um, other than you know the bowl game, they they definitely dominated. Uh, they they were having to win some shootouts. Uh, I mean, you know, beat Rutgers, I guess, pretty pretty uh, badly as well. But that losing stretch started with, um, I think a couple of these were defensive touchdowns, but still, you know, Iowa put up 51 points uh, in that first loss. Um, Ohio State scored 66 the next game. Uh, Minnesota, not necessarily the most explosive offense in the country, scored 34. Indiana, who we've already previewed, uh, really, really struggled on offense, scored 35, even though Maryland was able to win that uh, shootout. You know, and and the certainly tough, most talented teams in the Big Ten East outside of Ohio State, they played three in a row, which is a pretty tough uh, test in Penn State, Michigan State, and Michigan. But Michigan put up 59. Um, you know, certainly had a great year last year, but not usually a team that we see uh, threatened to score 60. Michigan State put up 40. You know, so so Maryland had its handfuls, had its uh, hands full with, yes, some really talented teams, but also, you know, gave up uh, big, big numbers um, among the biggest that those teams were able to, to produce last year. And, and it was a real issue. And there uh, we've we've mentioned before that Maryland has recruited really well there's certainly some talented players uh even on that defense i mean you know nick cross was a top 100 draft pick last year starting safety um but you know they they not only lost some of their more talented players but a handful of guys who they were you know expecting to step into uh big time positions uh you know starters major impact players guys like demarion robinson Brandon Jennings, Terrence Lewis, guys who are, uh, you know, the, the uh, gems of recent recruiting classes uh, opted to transfer. You know, Jackson's now at, uh, or excuse me, Terrell Jackson being being a guy who, you know, played a good bit. He's off to Miami. Uh, Robinson is off to Penn State. Uh, Terrence Lewis and Brandon Jennings both ended up at UCF. Um, they also lost some guys in the secondary who, you know, major weren't probably going to be major impact players. Uh, but Kenny Bennett went to Georgia Tech. Uh, Devin King ended up at Hawaii. Uh, Levante Gator, I believe, is still in the transfer portal. They lost a linebacker, Deshaun Holt, to Toledo. So, you know, a lot of guys who uh, would have probably been at least too deep, if not starters, you know, from a, a defense that needed basically all the help it could get. They're losing guys 
uh, to other programs. And, you know, they, they made some real efforts up front and the defensive line was probably already the strongest unit where they're getting guys like Amifano and, and Messiah Nasil Kite, Jarrell Nachami, who uh, has been banged up, hasn't played a whole lot the last couple of years, but has been an incredibly productive, uh, excuse me, productive pass rusher um, when he has been on the field. You know, that that's a pretty solid unit. But then they also added uh, through the transfer portal, you know, three potential uh impact players from Darius Cohen, who we talked about was at West Virginia, uh, was a former five-star almost uh, player signing with Alabama a few years ago. Uh, but, you know, they didn't really address the back seven. Um, and so, you know, will they be able to, to make improvement uh, just with, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more of a healthy season from guys like Deontay Banks, who missed a lot of time last year. Uh, Fanage Gote, who, um, you know, hasn't played a whole lot, hasn't been super productive, but healthy, you know, could push for a starting spot, but to sort of round out units that, you know, outside of Ruben Hippolyte and Jacorian Bennett and Tarheep Steele really aren't super experienced. So, you know, this is another opportunity for uh, Xavier to say, yeah, you know, old garbage just stinks more. Sure, but this is also a team that you know lost a good bit of that uh, old garbage and and didn't really bring anything else in that that smells any better. So it's hard to really anticipate that defensively Maryland is going to take a step forward. I think offensively they're going to be a lot of fun to watch. Talia Tungavailoa, I mean, when he's good, he's really good. When he's bad, like he was in that Iowa game can be bad, uh, but Rakeem Jarrett is, I mean, I just saw an NFL draft uh, watcher, I believe works for, for NFL.com, uh, who watches a lot of tape, um, posts a lot, a lot of highlights and stuff, uh, mentioned that Jarrett might be the fastest wide receiver in college football, you know, former five-star guy, absolute gem of a, of a recruit, a big win on the recruiting trail, sounded like you know, was another one of those guys that potentially had some big, big time programs sniffing around and, and hoping to entice him to transfer. Um, but he's, you know, a future pro, certainly a, a great combo with Tonga Bailoa. Dante Demas was actually the leading receiver, one of the re- leading receivers in the country when he went down with an injury last year. Hopefully he'll be able to, to get back up to full speed and time uh, to make a major impact. They brought in Jacob Copeland, who you know, played a lot, had some good moments at Florida. Uh, Deshaun Jones has been really, you know, battling injuries the last few years, but has also flashed at times. So, you know, uh, from a uh, just pure talent standpoint, potentially a top 10, at least in our rankings, they are seventh in our wide receiver and tight end uh, unit ratings. Um, you know, Talia Tungavailoa is a 97 rated player based on his production. And, and as a, a four-star recruit coming out of high school when he signed out of Alabama, uh, a potential you know, top 12 level quarterback, um, top 10 as far as starters go, it looks like in our, our ratings. So certainly, you know, a lot to be excited about there. Offensive line is experienced, not necessarily a, a standout unit, ranked 74th in O-line performance last year, but all five full-time starters are back, plus some other guys who, you know, got some some playing time. So offensively Maryland I think is going to be a lot of fun to watch and the schedule sets up maybe a little bit better uh with uh you know 
teams like Purdue, um, Northwestern, you know, they do have to play Wisconsin as a crossover from the West, but uh, not having to play that Iowa defense that was really, really good, especially early in the year last year, um, you know, probably a little bit of a, a, a win, but that East side of, of the division is tough and they do get Michigan and Michigan state early, which I think Michigan, especially probably uh, right when you want to play them, not where uh, because they do have to go on the road, but Maryland, if, if, you know, the first half of the schedule looks pretty nice and then finishing against Rutgers, uh, especially in a similar situation, it could be to where they were last year needed that win to get bowl eligible. That's probably what you want. But having to play Wisconsin, Penn State, and Ohio State, three in a row, two of them on the road right before that Rutgers game, not ideal. And then, you know, have to play Michigan and Michigan State back-to-back, also not ideal. Uh, Plus that non-conference game against SMU, we have as a a coin flip, and it is a home game. But that that is a losable game uh, for Maryland. So they're they're certainly going to be, you know, going to be careful and and certainly tested uh, right before Big Plinth. Big Ten play starts. So for Maryland to get back to a bowl game, probably can't afford a loss in non-conference play um, because they're looking at maybe 500 at best um, once they you know get into that, that Big Ten schedule. So it's tough unless they took a big step forward defensively and, and based on, you know, the way the roster is built, it's hard to anticipate that. Um, I think that Maryland's you know, ceiling is is pretty limited, and def- their their defense is a big reason why. I, I don't see any real reason um, to expect a, a major turnaround defensively. So maybe they'll show some improvement, um, but will a top seventy five defense, top you know seventy defense, uh, be good enough for them to take a big step forward? Probably not, unless this is is literally one of the best offenses in the country and and you know passing game they should be great should be a lot of fun but you know not quite sure they're uh at that point yet either so um this is uh i guess ending on a a good note uh at least as far as whether or not i agree with the projections i think that you know six and six is what we project but we are on technically the the projected win total uh being under six at 5.81 and i think i think probably five and seven to me personally, seems about right for Maryland. Yeah, Xavier, I'm not obviously not going to comment on Maryland uh, because anytime I do, they go ahead and beat Texas. I'm sure if I talk some smack here, they would play them in a bowl and they'd smack us down or something. But uh, look, Maryland is one of those teams that is a little bit tougher to figure out. Are you with Nick? Do you expect them to be under the six-win total and not be bowl eligible, or would you put them in a bowl game right now? If Talia can... If Talia can take that next step as a quarterback, this is a bowl, this is a bowl team. I, I think some of their losses last year were exacerbated by his, you know, his up and down play. You know, there were games there where I was like, okay, cool. They've won a couple in the row. You know, they start off 4-0, all right? Then they get blown out by Iowa and Ohio State back-to-back. Um, you know, but for every one of those games, I, I felt like their games against even Michigan State, that game – was not as much of a blowout as it suggests. Talia just really started forcing it in the second half. Same thing with Minnesota. Uh, you know, they in that game, I think he threw three picks back to back to back or something or rather. So, you know, it was it was really rough at times. And if he could protect the football, this is a team and this is an offense that could go with anybody. Now, the other piece to this is 
the Big Ten won't be as deep as it is as it uh, was last year. I don't think this year. Last year, when they caught Iowa, I think Iowa was a top ten team in the country. You know, uh, you know, we'll, top five team in the country. Uh, you know, they catch Ohio State at its peak. They caught a, a Minnesota team that was hungry at that point. You know, they caught a, a Penn State team that was top ten. Michigan State, when they played them, we were talking about a possible playoff team. Like so, when when you when you look at some of the the situations that they ended up in last year, I feel like they under you know they didn't play as well as they could have but they also played some you know some really just hard tests at that time in the year you look at this year's schedule i don't see that being nearly the case uh they play a little bit of a harder non-conference schedule uh, adding smu this year so that's going to be a nice game that'll also be a, a one heck of a shootout it could possibly be um yeah, but no but they get purdue this season they get purdue at indiana and northwestern that, that, that three-game stretch, they should be either winning two out of those three or winning all three of those games. I mean, when you look at last year, uh, I just think they, they have more winnable games in some of those patches in the year. You know, they, they, they play, you know, Wisconsin, Penn State, Ohio State all in a row, and then they get Rutgers. So it's like, yeah, you know, you, you have to go through these really tough stretches. You know, I mentioned Purdue, Indiana, and Northwestern. Well, they get that after playing Michigan and Michigan State. I just feel like they have more winnable games on this year's schedule, and you're not looking at, you know, you know, I think at one point last year, if you would have looked at their schedule, you would have genuinely saw numbers next to every team that they played for about two and a half months. That's just ridiculous. Uh, and so I think this year they, they should be better. I think they will be better. Uh, and I think I expect Talia to take that next step because um, obviously he's in a year where he could possibly be drafted. So obviously the pressure is on him to do so. And this is the best receiving core he's had whilst being at Maryland. So Maryland for me should win six games. Now, if they win any more than six games, I'll be personally surprised. But this is a team that absolutely should win six games. Uh, and, and that's what I hold them at as of right now. I love what they've got going on up there, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and this, like, and like Nick said, this is going to be a fun team to watch nevertheless. I uh, just – uh, purely based off of the offensive talent that they have. Their defense will be a question, but their defense was a question mark last year, and they were still able to win, you know, as many games as they did. So I think the, I think Talia takes that next step. This offense looks more consistent more than anything. I think consistency will will, will breed that will help them win more games more than anything else will. Um, and yeah, six games. And so I'm going to go with the over when it comes to Maryland this year, which obviously I think can be completely wrong. Uh, real quick, I just did want to mention that. Uh, the uh, notes that we put together for our Patreon supporters uh, that include, you know, a lot of the numbers that we talk about throughout these previews and, and especially um, the part of that where we list individual stat leaders and who's coming back and who's not um, notable returners, incoming transfers, all that good stuff. Fell a little bit behind on that this week with it being the first uh, week for most or really every uh, team opening fall camp. And we are also going to have a pretty quick turnaround um, for our next episode of this. So there will be a little bit of a delay in getting that up for our Patreon supporters. Uh, apologize for that delay. You should look for it uh, probably middle of next week. Uh, team 70 to 51, um, I would say. So uh, be on the lookout for that. But, you know, sorry, it's not going to be right up um, with or before this show. Gets How posted. dare you unpack your belongings after moving, uh, well, Nick? Well, we need well, updates. Well, so this this was more of a like, oh, let me just read one more five, que <laughs> five questions as uh, UTEP opens yep. uh, fall camp. So uh fell a little bit behind that that part was my fault but then also we are going to be able to 
to get a quick turnaround on the next one. So I'm just not going to have as much time uh, to, to prep the, the next sheet as well. So we'll be playing a little bit of catch up next week, but um, that will be coming uh, as soon as we can. All right. Well, that will wrap us up for this week. Notes will be coming soon, but we got podcasts to record, guys. We got a lot of stuff to do. These take us a while, obviously. So uh, just expect those notes a little bit later. But remember, you can follow us all on the Twitter at Bogman Sports for myself, at CFB Winning Ish for Nick, and at Xavier underscore Trishier, I-C-H-E for Xavier. And we will see you guys in a couple days, not a week this time. So pay attention for that early podcast where we'll be dropping two this week. So just check it out and we will see you guys later. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music to learn more about CFB winning edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB winning edge, or follow us on Twitter at CFB winning edge. Mm-hmm.